Anti-Josh Hutchinson podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Yes, we have finally reached what we have been, what I think is our destiny. Uh, John being as anti-Josh Josh Hutchinson as he is, we of course were always going to get around to the Hunger Games. We're starting um, strong, we're starting real strong. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh. We're covering the entire... Our first run of films, prequel excluded, because that just came out this year. Uh, so we're doing Hunger Games. Catching Fire. We're doing the Hunger Games. We're doing Mockingjay Part 1, Mockingjay Part 2. Yeah, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, Mockingjay's Parts 1 and 2. Uh, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Um, well, I actually don't have much this week because there was quite a lot of special features for the uh, Hunger Games movies, so I was watching those, um, not since probably the Twilight movies have there mm. been as comprehensive a suite of special features on these, mm. these it's movies. It's good to see them when the... Comp- I like it when it's very detailed, very comprehensive stuff. Like, I like it when a movie has a documentary. Yeah. yeah like a proper do documentary, not like yeah. three featurettes that you can hit play all on, but a proper beginning yeah. to end. They did one for the production of the Batman. Did they? That, oh. was, a, that was a fascinating um, thing to watch because it gets into all of the pandemic stuff. Because obviously that movie was shot in part during the pandemic. So that was fascinating. It just well, lets the- you get a good view into how they make that kind of high-budget blockbuster film. Well, the two movies that I saw outside of the Hunger Games franchise did not receive that kind of treatment in their special features. Uh, definitely, they were not big enough movies to qualify for that. One of them is ATM. It is a horror thriller directed by David Brooks, and uh, it's a Christmas movie, funnily enough. It's after a Christmas party. Three co-workers are carpooling home. There is David, played by Brian Garrity. Corey, played by Josh Peck, and Emily, played by Alice Eve. It's 2 yeah, a.m. I've in the morning. I've seen the trailer for this. Yeah, it's 2 a.m. in the morning, and they stop for cash at an ATM, uh, sort of a hut, because this is a thing that I, I think I've seen on occasion in Australia, but is mostly an American thing, from what I can tell. It's more common in America and places like that, where the you know snow and weather and stuff can be much more disruptive, but where you actually have to go into a little enclosure a little glass building to use an atm um anyways they go in to use one of those in a deserted parking lot but find themselves trapped and menaced by a murderous stranger outside uh he's played by mike o'brien this is a simple premise with a flawed execution it's almost a one location movie with the exception of the stuff that you see at the start them leaving their company's christmas party etc 
it's a one location movie and i like those but you need depth to explore and this movie doesn't it's a premise without a story the worst part of it is the characters they're just boring there's nothing there there is no body or or dimension to any of them um the script is awful i mean it's actually worse at the start of the movie because that's when they're su- supposed to be having quote unquote natural conversation with each other and speaking like normal people talk to each other and it's it's super painful but um it actually improves a bit once they're sort of screaming and crying in the atm shelter uh it all just strands the actors without much support um and you know i i'm not gonna none of them are like award-worthy actors to begin with but i've seen all three of them be better in other things uh and you know they're really they're in the deep end without a lifeline uh in this film the action beats are reasonable in the way that they're pulled off and it mines all that it can from the premise but there's still just not enough there that the end credits take a long long time and i i it actually stretches it right up to the 80 i can't remember the 80 or the 90 minute mark but pretty much on the dot which makes me think it was frankly contractual that they had to reach that uh that number um, yeah. because it's literally like a couple of credits then a flash of like bizarre imagery and then a couple more credits and it just goes on and on uh it seems confused about what point it's trying to make because it is trying to make a point it just doesn't seem to be able to decide which one is it about random street violence is it an allegory for the global financial crisis especially considering that all three of these characters work for an investment firm and they're trapped in an atm kiosk uh there are a couple of nasty twists that you'll probably see coming a mile away and the ending is hugely disappointing it's like they couldn't think of an actual resolution so they decided to just not put one in and say it was creepy Mm. i can't recommend it it's not a good watch um the other movie i saw was much better it is the hunter a drama film directed by daniel netheim it's based on the novel of the same name by Julia Lee. It follows a mercenary named Martin, played by Willem Dafoe. He's hired by a biotech company to travel to Australia, to Tasmania, to investigate a potential Tasmanian tiger sighting for any international listeners who do not know. Um, they're basically our version of the buffalo. We, uh, through colonialism, wiped them off the face of the map. Um, yeah, you're here from residents around my area all the time that people have seen them which i highly well yes especially since we live in queensland i highly doubt it (laughs) no but they Um, did they did yeah appear on the mainland but predominantly yeah but we're we're in a way more built that's like seeing the yeti in a national in the middle (laughs) of a central park like it's not (laughs) um we're in a much built up more built up area than the wild of tasmania but um anyways this biotech company thinks that it can get something from dissecting the corpse of this tiger if they can get it so uh martin goes out to this middle of nowhere town uh to operate from he's going to go out into the bush and try and find this thing uh so he uses this middle of nowhere town as his home base and while he's there he bunks with a woman named lucy played by francis o'connor and her children sass played by morgan davis and bike played by finn woodlock uh their father is missing lucy's husband and uh he just sort of disappeared and was never found and um there's also at the same time this sort of collision 
of cultures between the local loggers and some greenies who want to stop them from logging. And all of this stuff is going on. And uh, it's sort of tied up in the search for the uh, Tasmania tiger and Martin's loyalties become conflicted. I read the book um, of this a few years ago. I wasn't a huge fan of it. I thought it was a little self-serious and pretentious. Um, But I was interested in this, mostly because I couldn't see how you'd adapt that book. That book was so internal. It was so interior and very much about being inside Martin's head. You don't even, like Martin is the, um, they don't ever make this clear in the movie, but Martin is the pseudonym that he uses. He's only ever really referred to as M in the the prose narration. But um, the movie has taken the story and made it, I think, a lot warmer, a lot more personal and a lot more approachable than that very sort of glacial, cold, at a remove kind of story that the book told. There are huge portions given over now to this sort of external plot, stuff that wasn't in the book, stuff that is very much happening to Martin or around Martin rather than the the emotional to and fro in his head. Um, obviously, I've you know there's stuff like the loggers versus the greenies, which is just not in the book. Um, they also lean really heavily into a thriller element that was virtually non-existent in the book. Um, it reframes certain characters in such a way as to create antagonists, particularly the character of Jack, played by Sam Neill, who takes on a, a very different tone and personality than he does in the book. But the biggest change of all is Martin, because in the book, he is very distant and cold. He's uh, he's not here. Willem Dafoe is... I've noticed this as a shift in Willem Dafoe, sort of maybe post-2010. He's done a lot of stuff that have been has been more sort of warm and paternal and that kind of a role and this kind of in a strange way fits that he finds himself becoming attached to this broken family that he's staying with um and the movie has made him a lot more easy to root for than than he is in the book but it also seems not to realize how much it's moved away from that characterization in the book because they still try and use some of the um philosophy that the book does of you know Willem Dafoe's just like this Tasmanian tiger. He's not fit for being in civilization. He's just got to be out in the wild. And, um, you know, how can he ever get close to anyone? Da, da, da. When that's really not the character we're seeing Dafoe playing in a lot of these scenes. Um, The relationship with the family is very sweet. It's nice to watch. Again, it's a much cuddlier version than the one in the book. Dafoe is excellent, though. He, the emotions, obviously, it being a movie, the emotions of the character are more on the surface. And, um... It, it's much more he, – he does this very appreciated alchemy of taking that internal struggle and putting it on the face of the character, um, which works really well. It's a very good performance, even if sometimes uh, the movie itself seems – or the script itself seems not to have adjusted enough to accommodate it. I think he's giving the right performance for a film adaptation of this book. The script kind of hasn't made all the adjustments it needed to make. Um but I do think it, it fumbles the tiger theme. There are some very dark, cynical things in the book. Um, but this, again, goes cuddlier uh, than it does in the book. Uh, it becomes this kind of pat, corporate greed versus nature parable by the end. And the movie and the book is a lot more cynical and, you know, sort of world weary about how it, and deals it goes with that. to some weird places, too. On occasion, yeah. Like when you say weird, we should be clear. Like not 
supernatural or anything like that but mm. like it just it has a very sort of like desolate tone to it that um it uh I don't know. I think it, it could have stood to retain some of the bite and the edge that that book had. Um, but uh, it, it does fail to tie all of those themes together with the social division stuff, the greenies versus the loggers, which is a really potent um, conversation in Australia, especially at that time, at the time that the movie was made, rather, because we, we were going through all whole bunch of bullshit with um, certain... Uh, organizations and groups and political voices trying to very loudly insist that climate change was not real which we still have to a certain extent but like they were actually like mucking up government attempts to fight climate change and so that seems very much um quite a potent thread for the time that this movie came out but they don't really do enough with it it misses the shot um there are stunning landscapes though like it's all filmed uh on location and it the production values are just fantastic. It looks gorgeous, especially on Blu-ray. And you get a very uh, strong score by Andrew Lancaster, Michael Lira, and Matteo Zingales. Um, yeah, it's worth watching. Um, I actually think it's better than the book. Or I shouldn't say that. It's not better than the book. It's more enjoyable than the book. It's more more my thing. Um, they are, in the end, two different versions of the same story, taking two different approaches. The book is probably a more cohesive whole, but The Hunter... The movie was more of a, um, a pleasure to watch, let's say. Um, but if you would like to follow along at home and, and watch that, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Stan. Yep, so for us, we've had kind of a busy sort of Christmas break. Uh, less so than we would have expected, but to be fair, we have watched four Hunger Games movies uh, in between other stuff. Uh, so for the first thing, we started as started and completed a series on Disney Plus called The Artful Dodger, an irreverent follow-up to Dickens' Oliver Twist exploring the adult double life of Charles Dickens' famous Prince of Thieves. Set in 1850s Australia in the lively colony of Port Victory, we meet Jack Dawkins, the Artful Dodger, uh, played by Thomas Brodie Sangster, who's transferred his fast fingers as a pickpocket to the nimble skilled fingers of a surgeon. Dodger's past returns to haunt him, with the arrival of the cunning and unscrupulous Norbin F- Norbert Fagan, played by David David Thewlis, luring, luring him back into a world of crime. However, a greater threat to Dodger's heart is Lady Bell, played by Maya Mitchell, the governor's daughter determined to become the colony's first female surgeon. For you see, the awful Dodger stru- struggles to read. Uh, it is believed he has dyslexia. And uh, Lady Bell has all of the, the book knowledge that... Dodger is missing. So they strike up a sort of friendship and relationship first based on that, and it goes further than further from there. Uh, from heists to life and death surgeries, from soirees to street violence, this is a tale of reinvention, betrayal, redemption, and love with a bit of a twist. Uh, John, wait, you see a short piece about the artful Dodger? I really enjoyed this. It has a lot of energy. It has a lot of talented people behind it. Uh, Thomas Birdie Sangster, Maya Mitchell, Tim Minchin shows up. We've also got Miranda Tapsall, David Thewlis, uh, Damon Herriman. The dialogue is so whip-smart and so quick that it's just a joy to watch. And though the story goes into some pretty obvious directions, it really does a lot to update the story of The Artful Dodger and 
update those characters to the modern day. The thing I like the most about this is that it really does feel very Australian. And that comes with some of the side plots as well. The effects here, in terms of the practical gore, are incredible. They're all in a medical area, so you're not seeing people's heads get blown off. But when it's the surgery scenes, they do a really good job at making that stuff tangible and making these actually life-or-death situations. Yeah, I. it's just one of those really good, pleasant shows to watch. And I, I know that the show was quite well-received, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with it in the future. Does it seem uh, like a like an ongoing thing, like something they intend to be an ongoing series, or does it look like a limited series? No, it it's the kind of thing that they could stop here, but they could also keep going. I would really hope for a second season, though. Uh, they don't really leave us on a cliffhanger, but it would be best for a second season. Um, so I quite enjoyed The Artful Dodger as a TV show. I'm not as familiar with Oliver Twist as I am Charles Dickens' other work, like, obviously, Christmas Carol, or even stuff like, uh, shit, what was it? I had the name just before. Great Expectations, Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, and David Copperfield. stuff like, David Copperfield, stuff like that. Um, and much like the David Copperfield adaptation we got a couple of years back, um, this has a fantastic frenetic energy to it. They really understand that when you adapt a Dickens' work and try to expand upon it, because this does function as a sequel uh, to Oliver Twist, it's very, very witty characters, a really fun sort of energetic pace, and a lot of that comes through with characters like Fagin and how he's played here by David Thewlis, and you can tell he's always looking for an angle. He's got this quality about him that is both paternal and deeply untrustworthy, uh, which is really fun. Uh, Brody Sangster and uh, Mitchell have wonderful chemistry together. Uh, Thomas Brody Sangster is a y- younger actor that I've always been interested in. Um, hasn't been in that much recently. I hope this brings an uptick to his career, because this is a great, great performance. Um, and it really shows that he can shine in a starring role as opposed to being on the periphery. Well, he's got that uh, um, Tom Holland syndrome where he, he's looked 12 for the last 15 years. Yeah. So um, he really does have... He has this youthful energy, but you can see in his eyes when he's playing the Dodger that everything that he has seen, and he has seen a lot, it has played on his mind. Um, the supporting cast is fantastic. I think Tim Minchin as an actor, is great. I've liked it. I've enjoyed his performances and everything I've seen him in as an actor. And his character um, is perfectly named in the Dickens way, Darius Cracksworth. Yeah. Um, but I'd have to say my favorite performance in the show comes from Damon Herriman. Um, he plays uh, Captain Gaines, and he's like this uber-religious like authority figure. He When he threatens people, he goes into this sort of fugue state where you can tell he's getting some... It's not a sick enjoyment. It's almost like a religious experience yeah. to him uh, to be cruel to another person. And that's such an interesting detail in the performance. Like, they don't say it, but you can see it in his performance. 
Um, one of my favorite elements of the show is I love the use of the Australian outback and just the fact that they set it in Australia. It puts character a character like Norbert Fagan, who's basically built uh, to operate in the streets of a developed city, and put him into a penal colony, and see how he has to try and adapt his style into somewhere where jewels and shit like that just aren't as worthwhile targets as they once were in London. People need practical things. Grog, mining equipment, food, and that's such an interesting uh, wrinkle for a character like Fagan. Um, like John said, the surgery scenes are all incredible. The practical gore on display is top-notch. Um, we don't get so to see some of the more complicated surgeries, but I think that's fine. Um, and while I don't know exactly how accurate a lot of the medical science is, um, it's incredibly compelling as a through line. Uh, because you get that balance between Dodger trying to be something more than a thief, but also the fact he just likes getting one over on some rich asshole. He's good at thieving. Uh, he's good at thieving. And he loves surgery, and that's the sort of struggle he's got going on inside of him. It's a fan it's a fantastic show. Really strong uh, sequel to Oliver Twist. We do get characters popping up um, from the original novel outside of Fagin and Dodger. And one of the ways that they take one of the characters from the book is very, very interesting. Uh, a bold swing to people familiar with the book, but very, very fascinating on how they actually executed it. Um, you can find The Artful Dodger on Disney+. Plus. It's not available yet in the United States. Uh, I believe that is in February. Uh, but it's available here, of course. Uh, before we started on The Artful Dodger, uh, and before we went on holidays, we watched a couple of movies. The first being Dark Harvest. Uh, it is directed by David Slade, based on the novel by Norman Partridge. Every fall in the small Midwestern... Every fall in a small Midwestern town, a supernatural specter named Sawtooth Jack arises from the cornfields and approaches the town's church, where violent gangs of young boys hungrily await their chance to confront and kill the legendary Nightmare in an annual harvest rite of life and death. Richie Shepard lives in the shadow of his big brother, who won last year's October prize to get his ticket out of town. Forbidden from competing, but with a drive to prove himself and join his brother, Richie pairs up with restless streamer Kelly Haynes. Uh, Richie is played by Casey Likes. Uh, Kelly is played by Amiri Crutchfield, uh, who will do whatever it takes to escape this dead-end town. Rebels with a very good cause, Richie and Kelly decide to hunt down the legendary Nightmare, win the run, and their freedom for themselves. All while avoiding the batshit insane sheriff of the town, Jerry Ricks, played by an out-of-his-mind Luke Kirby. Uh, John, why don't you say your short piece about Dark Harvest? This movie has so much style to it. It feels like a horror... <sighs> it feels like the perfect Halloween movie. And this is directed by the guy who directed... Uh, I think it was the bloodiest of the Twilight movies. And also 30 Days of Night. And you don't think he's going to go in that direction until you see... Sawtooth Jack, or as he's spoken about in the novel this is based off of, The October, the October Boy, Boy. Uh, until he goes into a 
bomb shelter and you see a geyser of blood. A proper geyser of blood. This is incredible. And what it's talking about is founding myths about what people are willing to do to keep a perceived future away from them. And it's all about tradition and how tradition can be corrupted. The acting here is great across the board, except from Kirby. See, I don't know, he's the one weak link in what is otherwise a pretty great film. Because it's not the kind of over-the-top which is entertaining, it's the kind of over-the-top which completely defeats the point of the character. Like, this guy, I, I don't give a shit that it's the 1950s. I get the feeling that this guy would t- have his guns and badge taken away from him. Just simply because every time he looks at someone, he looks like he's going to fucking snap. Every time. I don't know if it was the fact that this was the direction he was given, or that he wasn't given much direction, but it's a very poor performance. When, if he pulled it back just a bit, it may have been salvageable. But the practical gore here, the design of Sawtooth Jack, is fantastic. The kills, just the aesthetic of this movie feels like good, classic Halloween fare. It feels like home. It's the kind of horror movie that I like. Uh, what I appreciate about Dark Harvest is that it doesn't fuck around. Uh, you know, right from the get-go, Sawtooth Jack is 100% real, and pretty much all the characters know. Mm. They've seen this right performed for decades now, and it's no surprise what happens at the end of it. Uh, and that is a very compelling way to start. Because with a lot of horror movies, it's People in the normal world trying to uh, confront new information, like they find out that the supernatural exists, or find out that there's a slasher going around cutting people up. But no, it sets us in a very sort of supernatural space. It feels like a myth. It feels like a legend in that regard. It feels, dare I say it, literary. Um, Of course, this is based on a book. Um, The plot is different. Uh, this is perhaps an earlier Halloween than the one portrayed in the book itself. Um, but I love Sawtooth Jack as a concept, and the fact that he's this sort of uh, fertility life and death right, who needs to die for the town to survive, which makes him not only a monster, but also a victim uh, of these roaming packs of teenage boys who have been starved for three nights and then set loose. Uh, it's a very compelling concept, and it's performed well by a lot of the actors. I think Casey Likes is fantastic as this sort of um, greaser. A bit of a James Dean to him. Kind of. I wouldn't go as far as to say he's emulating James Dean, but that's really what they're going for with this character. Um, Amelia Crutchfeld is fantastic and has really great chemistry with Likes. Um, the... The creature movement um, of Sawtooth Jack by Dustin Kaitama is phenomenal. Um, you could really feel the agony uh, that the October Boy is in. It's brilliant. Uh, Jeremy Davies shows up as Richie's dad. Um, John and I recognize him from The Black Phone, and he's fantastic it's here as well. It's a very different energy. Very different energy. Like, almost but- polar opposite. 
but still incredibly yeah. compelling. It's so good to get that kind of vibe from him because you can see that he's very much been put as, hey, you're the parent in this horror movie, but we're going to give you a bit of range. Uh, he gets to do some stuff that I kind of wish uh, Henry Thomas got to do in Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Oh, 100%. Uh, that, that, this is a very comparable movie, I think. It Except might just I be think the fact that we didn't better. watch it too far away, but I do see a lot of similarities present. Uh, Dead End Town, monsters coming up out of the ground, very autumnal, um, and very about legacy in that regard. Elizabeth Reese is here. John and I are very familiar with her work from all the Flanagan projects that she's been in. See, uh, she's fantastic. She has one standout scene, and she's brilliant. See, I was unsure about her performance because I felt like it was going in the direction of the sheriff, but she ends up really bringing it home and making mm. that character make perfect sense. And a bunch of the other young actors that they've got to play the rampaging teenage boys are fantastic as well. And you get a lot of scenes of the carnage that they bring to the town. Um, and David Slade just has this fantastic style. That that has been on display since 30 Days of Night. Uh, we're familiar with uh, his work during the Twilight movies that he did. The but one, like, this just, is him. Just Eclipse, I think, wasn't it? I think so. Um, or did he but- do the two... Oh, no. no, I think he did Eclipse. Yes, he yeah. he did yeah. the one where I think there was a there was the a lady, battle at the end. It's not the last one though. It's the one where the female vampire starts creating an army. Yeah, that's yeah. Eclipse. Yeah. Um, but this is kind of him off the leash. Not as crazy as Thirty Days of Night, mind you. Oh, he goes places though. You get oh, some that's really right. the, the Breaking Dawn movies were inexplicably Bill Condon. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, they were. Um, but this is him kind of off the leash. I love this movie. I think it was fantastic. But God damn it, Luke Kirby, what the hell were you doing, mate? It's a performance so poor, so baffling that it brings down the score of the movie overall. And like, yeah, it hate is, to see it. It is an actively bad performance. Yeah, like he's doing this teeth gritted thing. Like old fifties sheriff nonsense. It's it's too much. It's way too much. The man is a um, maniac. It's either he was getting direction to do that, and that was David Slade's fault, or he wasn't getting any direction, and it's still David Slade's fault. Um, but either way, that character should have been reworked because he's. Don't get me wrong. It's an interesting character. Oh, he's and got a monologue which, in any other situation, could be heartbreaking. But the fact that it's coming out of a person who's absolutely certifiable means that you don't believe a single word of it. He's just a maniac. He's not a maniac. He's not tortured by what's going on. He has a fantastic backstory, and I believe that the character uh, is the focus of one of the short stories to come out of Dark Harvest. Um, But... I don't see what would be compelling about the character based on the performance alone. So that needed a hell of a lot of work to make right. Uh, but the movie itself, I quite enjoy. I think it's got style to spare. I love how it just sets us up with the myth and then runs with it. It's not interested in all this back and forth, is he real, is he not nonsense. It's direct. And the ending is phenomenal. And the ending is phenomenal. It's brutal. And it's 
dare I say, necessary. Mm. We also uh, because watched... Because it, it gets the point across. We also watched another 2023 movie. We are mopping up some of the stuff that we've got left over. Of course, there are some things that have just left theaters that we are still waiting to see. We've got some stuff that are in cinemas that we are trying to see over the next week or so. Uh, but we have watched a franchise film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, of course, is swept up into one final adventure by his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She believes that she has the location to a time travel device designed by Archimedes, the titular Dial of Destiny. But it's a race against who else in an Indiana Jones film but a Nazi? Or, well, a not-so-ex-Nazi played by Mads Mikkelsen by the name of Jürgen Voller and his band of neo-Nazi goons. Does Indy have it in him? Or should he be put in a museum with the rest of the artifacts that he's quote-unquote borrowed? <laughs> the artifacts he's rescued. Yes. So I'll let Harley say his piece about this one. Um, I've always been compelled by Indiana Jones. And I think more the idea of Indiana Jones than any of the films themselves. Um, I like the first one. I think Temple of Doom is bug nuts. Uh, I like the ending to Last Crusade. Um, then it gets crazier from there. Uh, less melting Nazis by holy power and more, we're going straight up sci-fi in this bitch. Uh, with aliens and, you know, what ends up happening in this one. Um, Interdimensional being beings, Harley, please. Are they're they from not Earth? from this plane, they're not from this dimension. They're by aliens. They're from the space between spaces, that's what John Hurt told us. They're oh, alien to our dimension. Anywho, um... But I gotta love watching Harrison Ford punch Nazis. I just love that shit. It just hits me in my happy place. Um, and it is nice to see him still knocking around as Indiana Jones, even though the scenes we get set in the past are terrifying. Uh, technology still ain't there. It ain't there yet. Uh, mainly because it is the CGI younger face of Harrison Ford still covering older Harrison Ford. So he still sounds like a very old man, and yeah. he still moves in part, outside of the action scenes, like a very old man. Um, that being said, I think he's an incredibly compelling character in this one. He's sort of at the end of his life, and he knows that this is kind of it for him. He's pushed everyone away, and he's near retirement, so to speak. Yeah, um, that's the thing that really stood out to me that I liked the most about the movie is that it doesn't pretend that he is still as capable as he was. Like, hmm. No, he's, he's not. Never, he will get into a hand-to-hand -hand fight if he has to, if he's literally the last resort, but he does not win any of them. No. Like, no. He gets like, filtered around. He'll fight when he has to, and he'll lose. But How to many be fair, times we do we have to teach you this lesson, old lesson, man? man? See, it's funny because <laughs> I, think, I think it's so humorous that out of the two people in this movie who have lived through World War II, Jürgen has taken much better care of himself and is able to throw <laughs> down still. Well, that's the problem. That, that is my great thesis of this movie, is that it should have been a contemporary of Harrison Ford's. Instead it should have, definitely. It should have been like Udo Kier or someone. Mm. Yeah. Or Christoph I do Waltz, like, even. Um, I do like uh, what Mickelson is doing, though. Um, I've always liked him as an actor. I think he's really strong here. And I like his comeuppance. <laughs> it's freaking brilliant. Um, but again, this is just... You get some good 
temple crawling stuff later into the movie, and that's really fun. Um, I know you weren't the biggest fan of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, but I quite liked her. Um, I think she worked well for me as someone who is starting at this and is just as unscrupulous as Indy has ever been, but... I think she's more unscrupulous than Indiana Jones. I mean, she straight up is willing to just sell this to neo-Nazis. She's just a criminal. He is at least working for a museum. To be fair... Like he his theft his theft is sanctioned. Yes, but like um, um yeah, and John is right. She's willing to, to to sell some stuff to neo Nazis. That's fair. Um, I will say like I like the way that they match her sort of pep and yeah. Phoebe Waller Bridge sort of humor with this much older, more grizzled version of Indiana Jones. Yeah. There's a scene just after they escape a boat where she tries to make a joke and he just shuts her down. And that's like maybe my favourite scene in the yeah. movie because it's so striking. And, and it feels like James Mangold is trying to say something about that older generation of action hero that this is set very much around the moon landing. Indy is not a spring chicken. He is older. The world has changed and it's not really his world anymore. And he's mourning that as much as he's mourning the losses in his life. And what I find very interesting about Mangold's career as a director, he's very compelled by the idea of his heroes being fragile. Um, Obviously, for his Wolverine movies, The Wolverine and Logan, the healing factor is, for the most part, a non-factor. Yeah, he he tries his very best to chuck it in the bin at the first opportunity. And here, it's an aged Indiana Jones who will fight when he has to, but he's not bouncing back like he used to. Indiana Jones in all of the movies gets the shit kicked out of him, but he bounce- He comes up slower every time here, um, which is really sad by the end, because you really sympathize for the guy. This is Indiana Jones, and more than that, this is Harrison Ford. And the more and more Harrison Ford does taxing movies like this, the slower and slower he goes. Um, but he's energised here. He actually does seem to care here, which is a plus. Well, he's always said that, like, unlike Han Solo or something like that, where it's sort of been a begrudging acceptance mm. of the character he's found, he's always said how much he enjoys coming yeah. back for Indiana Jones. Like, yeah. he was really into coming back this time. And which That is honestly fantastic to see. And you can tell he loves the character of Indy. You can tell that the character means so much to him. And I don't know, I had a great time with this one. I, liked- I think it's it's got some good old classic Indiana Jones temple crawling, even though he's doing it a lot slower than he used to. Um, he punches Nazis, which can never go wrong for me. He does have a fight on top of a train, which I've seen quite a lot of recently. And I, I think we're kind of done with train action set pieces by this point. I really liked this one. I liked it more than Crystal Skull, I think, um, mainly because this felt a little more of a piece with the first three. Uh, I still think that the that uh, Last Crusade is my favorite one of the Indi- Indiana Jones movies because we do get that young Indy at the beginning, and we also have Indiana Jones's father as a sort of balancing act for him. And I just like the the ending with the Grail. I think that's great stuff. And this gave me a really good feeling. I it felt right for Indy. Um, do you think we're going to be getting any more of these? Because no. 
No. This They've one flat out this said, one performed no. dramatically underperformed. Like I yeah. believe it it lost some money. Um, I know that they've got, or they have announced in the past that there is a uh, streaming series and development of Disney Plus, which I think would be a a young indie kind of story. But um, who would you get? Oh, if you asked me eight years ago, I might have said Chris Pratt, but the tide sort of you don't turned want to on do him. More and he's, <coughs> yeah, he's sort of run out that gag, hasn't he? Plus, he's sort mm. of aged out of the part. I think. I don't know. You, I think you'd probably want. You probably want like an unknown. I would say an unknown, yeah. but someone who's done a few things but isn't someone that jumps to top of mind when you ask a question like that. Not the someone guy like, from Solo? No. Although <laughs> that wasn't his fault. But like you're, no. you're talking about like like him in terms of fame, yeah. you know? He'd been in a few things. He'd been in that Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar and stuff, but he was he that was his first big thing. Yeah. I think that's the kind of thing that you would be looking for. I would like to see that because I do think um, the Indiana Jones movies and stuff like The Mummy, um, I found those kinds of things really compelling. Just adventure movies, you know? We got a lot of superhero stuff, get a lot of sci-fi stuff, not a lot of just straight-up adventure stuff anymore. Um, And I think it could be really fun to get that series. I like this. It has a lot of great adventure to it, as was said before. The set pieces are fun, including a pretty great car chase, and that opening section on the train, which does call back to the beginning of Lost Crusade. Uh, the score is latter days John Williams, but it is used effectively specifically with a pretty great ending. And the way this movie ends is very heartwarming. There was a character missing from the ending that would have really liked to see. Uh, especially considering the particular actor's resurgence into the public sphere. Well, now that you've said that, you might as well just say short round. I mean, who else is there? <laughs> like John Rhys da- Davis hasn't really resurged into the public sphere, has he? Like- no. <laughs> but it would have been nice to see him. It would have it- been, yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised that they didn't try and put something like that together at the last minute. Because but- you know Kei Kwan would have loved it. Also, the effects on this movie are kind of... Hit dodgy. On this. They're a bit dodgy. It's maybe, aside from Crystal Skull, maybe the worst looking Indiana Jones movie, just in terms of the VFX. Uh, you can find uh, Dial of Destiny on Disney Plus. Uh, Lawson, you have a pit stake. I do as well. Yes, I will just say um, I've apparently, like, the, the latest thing on that, uh, that spin off series appears to be a rumor that it was cancelled. Um, Disney. A, that would a, make sense. A rumor that it was cancelled because Disney instructed Lucasfilm to focus on Star Wars after all of their problems uh, at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023. The same reason that Willow was cancelled, stuff like that. Anyway, um, I, of course, all through late last year, I was reading the Tomorrow series, and uh, just a couple of days before the end of 2023, I finished it. I got it in under the wire with the third book in the Ellie Chronicles, the sequel trilogy to the Tomorrow series, the 10th and final book of the franchise overall, Circle of Flight. It is, uh, as the others were, a young adult drama written by John Marsden, and it is the grand finale, as I said. Uh, in it, Ellie's struggles come to a head uh, when... The deaf uh, war orphan that she's been looking after, Gavin, is kidnapped by the uh, the enemy force that 
uh, has so recently um, occupied a lot of Australia or what once was Australia. And Gavin's taken across the border and basically held hostage in an attempt to lure her out to uh, get revenge for her actions during the war. I think this is an ending that fits emotionally, even if it is narratively pretty messy. I mean, it's been building a lot of power over the 10 books, a lot of time spent with these characters, um, and Marsden uses that power. He knows he has it and he deploys it. The conclusion is bittersweet and quite emotional, and uh, it's done really nicely. I really liked the last um, probably 100 pages or so. I think it comes together really, really well as a finale. But it's two books, essentially. You've got all of this espionage, subterfuge stuff in the first half, and then it switches almost entirely to this much tighter sort of domestic domestic drama wrapping up loose ends. That espionage stuff, I've been complaining about it throughout all three of these Ellie Chronicles books. It is still a problem here, and here it's just jarringly out of place, like really jarring, um, way more than the other two. And uh, I would say it's resolved too easily as well. It, it is more exciting espionage stuff than we've gotten in the rest of this trilogy, though. Um, but as I say, the, the book is much better, much more at home in putting the thematic arcs of the whole franchise to bed. Uh, Marsden fumbles a lot of the supporting characters. He's got a few too many things in play, and it seems like he almost got distracted and suddenly realised he needed to wrap it up and had to rush. But when it comes to the core of what this trilogy has been, it's been Ellie and Gavin and the relationship between the two of them. And, and there, as in the entire trilogy, Marsden has been hugely effective uh, in how he pulls that off. Um, I've grown to really love them as a pair. Um, I know that's a point of contention, it would appear, with a lot of fans of the books, in addition to their complaining that these books are boring because they spend too much time on the farm and not as much pew-pew, bang-bang. Um <laughs> The, they seem to have a problem You're with You're really Gavin. salty about that. Well, well, I just... just I look, and this is my fault for reading a, a young adult thriller novel as an almost 30-year-old man, but I'm looking for something different. <laughs> hey, but uh, then again, we are talking are, about apparently. Hunger Games. Yes, but um, the one of the things that they really... A lot of people seem not to like is Gavin, um, because he's a traumatised kid, and that slows the story down, and he doesn't behave in a way that, you know is always easy or likable. Um, and he's just got a lot of problems going on. And Ellie's got a lot of problems as well, and she doesn't handle him in the best way all of the time. But that's the thing that is most interesting to me. It's these two sort of um, very hurt young people who are all each other has left in the world. And that has a lot of meaning and impact for me. Uh, and I was far more invested in that than whatever odd little raid across the border Marston could come up with. And I think that he brings the story of these two characters to a conclusion in a really nice way. Um, the book also struck me as particularly well-written. They've always been well-written, but at this point, Marsden's just got Ellie's voice down pat. I mean, this is written in first person, and he's just absorbed so much of her personality into his writing. Um, it's got a very distinct voice to it. And um, Michaela Martin, who, as I mentioned Last time I talked about one of these books, became the new narrator on the ninth book of a 10-book franchise, which bugged me, considering it was in first person. Uh, she actually, I liked her, what she did once I got over it in the ninth book, but she is outright excellent in um, 
in this finale. She's got all the the voices down pat. She seems very comfortable with it, and she does it because it's first person. She does it almost as a performance instead of as mm. narration, which uh, really I I thought, especially towards some of the really emotional stuff at the end of the story, worked great. Um, I continued to think that this whole trilogy needed to drop the action entirely and needed to just be a domestic drama about two war orphans uh, struggling to survive in the aftermath of a massive conflict. Um, And uh, nevertheless, though, I I think that on the whole, there are worthwhile postscripts to that series. And uh, I, I do like that they're bittersweet, that they add kind of a sting to the story overall, that it's not a happy ending, that uh, like that's another thing I see people complaining about online is that, oh, so-and-so didn't even appear in these books. He just moved to New Zealand or so-and-so, you know, went off to boarding school or something and why can't that character come back more frequently? That's kind of the point is that... That's what happens. It Everyone just sort of spins off and you've got to find a way to travel on. It's not night, white picket, nice white picket fence, um, live happily ever after. Uh, and that's what I think that Marsden has been going for the entire franchise and what he does messily, but ultimately successfully, I think, pull off with this uh, this finale. I would just say a few like little things too. Um, it's interesting. He started writing the series in the early 90s. By the time he finishes the series, there, it's 2006. Um, and... He he very kind of cannily or sneakily, so subtly you might even miss it if you're not sort of paying attention, um, updates the setting of the book to uh, then mm. near future 2007 in this last Clever. book. Um, which is because like that original series was all of them, you know, on the run. So technology is not a factor. Um, but... Uh, He's done that. Also, um, I think I I mentioned at some point when I started the series that they at some point said that it was a coalition of um, of Asian countries that invaded. I think I remember reading that somewhere. I think it was in the movie. I'm not sure. Um, mm. I do I do remember reading that somewhere, but it didn't turn up in the books themselves at any point. So uh, yeah, I know I fairly clear. Um, throughout the the series that um marsden is he's the contextual things that he puts in you know that they're a, an asian force clearly um but he is very careful never to say or or even give much of a motivation really to mm. what's going on it's it's very blinkered very narrow it's really about these kids experience which i found interesting although i will say that um given all those contextual clues the only country that seems to fit and seems to be the broad consensus online is Indonesia. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it, it, like the and the more details he gave, frankly, the more impossible the whole scenario is. <laughs> like yeah. the direction that they're coming from, that they're on the like the southern east coast, whereas all of our closest neighbours come from a northerly direction. Uh, so why would they attack from the southern east coast? Uh, just even like the the military personnel that would be required to actually institute an invasion of Australia, the the infrastructure, all of it doesn't. Like the fact that every single one of our allies that we have treaties with would have to renege on their defence obligations. Like mm. it's a very tortured scenario to get to the point, but it's not. The, that's not the reason for the books. The reason is to explore these, these um, 
basically the effect of war on young people. And because Marsden is Australian, he's writing it for an Australian audience. So he puts it in a, a setting in which they can identify. What if it happened here? Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think we're a very, we would be a very difficult country to invade, just specifically because we are so spread out over a very large landmass that mm. has a lot of wilderness in it. Like, there's there aren't that many of us, so we've got under 30 million population, but our country is an entire continent. Yeah. And it would be very, yeah, very difficult to get all of that under control, I, I suspect. Uh, hopefully, we never find out. <laughs> um, anyways, on that uh, uplifting note, what have you been uh, exploring, Harley? So, I, w- I actually had the time to sit down and read, read a book. Like, physically read a book. Like, turning pages and everything. Um, I have read The Gunslinger, which is part one of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. The Gunslinger was first published in 1982 as a fix-up novel, joining five short stories that have been published between 1978 and 1981. King substantially revised this in 2003. This is the version that I read, the revised version. The man in black fled across the desert. The gunslinger followed. The story centers around Roland Deschain, the lost gunslinger, who has been chasing his adversary, the man in black, for many, many cycles. The novel infuses the western with fantasy, science fiction, and post-apocalyptic horror. Following Roland's trek through a vast desert and beyond in search of the man in black, Roland meets several people along his journey, including a boy named Jake from... Our world, New York, who travels with him part of the way. Sort of the genesis of the idea of the the gruff daddy character, which has become very popular nowadays from stuff like The Last of Us, The Mandalorian, and The Witcher. Um, speaking of The Witcher, this feels a lot like The Witcher. Uh, which is funny because this came first by a number of decades. Um, we're all tangentially familiar with The Dark Tower here. Um, as we are all fans of Stephen King's work. Um, this is sort of the fulcrum point where everything folds in on its st- on itself for Stephen King and his canon. Uh, characters like the Man in Black have appeared in multiple different projects, most notably The Stand. Um, Walter Paddock slash Walter O'Dim here is Randall Flair. Um, and that's not mentioned in particular here, but it is clear when you look at how he speaks in comparison to how Flag speaks. Very similar figures. Um, but the real compelling element here is Roland himself. The Gunslinger is a kind of this cowboy slash medieval knight sort of thing. Uh, they're hated by some, adored by most, but Roland is the last of them. Because his hometown of Gilead got shit mixed and is gone completely gone, and it is the Man in Black's fault, uh, because of the many faces that the Man in Black decided to wear to destroy uh, Gilead and the Gunslingers. Um, this feels very strange to talk about, because it doesn't exactly have a main plot outside of the Man in Black fled across the desert and the Gunslinger followed. The first line is essentially its plot, but what we get here is a very episodic sort of structure, a bunch of different stop-offs that Roland makes, the, the the terrible, shitty little town of Tull, the way station where he meets Jake, uh, who is legit just a child from 1970s New York City, because apparently pandem- 
pan-dimensional travel exists here. Um, you go into the caves and there's some weird, freaky monsters called the Slow Mutants, and you also get a sense that this is indeed a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, as Roland would put it, a, ro- a world that has moved on. Uh, you get him fighting some sort of demon ghost seer thing in a very kind of Witcher-esque turn where he takes drugs and starts screaming at the sky. Uh, and eventually the final confrontation, well, confrontation starts conversation with the man in black. Um, it's very, very interesting as sort of a tone piece more than anything. Uh, I recently got, I got onto the Dark Tower and started reading them because I know that Mike Flanagan has the rights to the Dark Tower. And while he hasn't got that shopped anywhere at the moment, he is working on it on, on, on a conceptual level. And I've just been thinking about who I would cast as Roland and who I would cast as Walter, the man in black. And I'm thinking for the man in black, someone like Hamish Linklater. Um, I think he'd be fantastic as sort of this quasi-religious figure, like Flag slash Walter f- portrays himself as, as sort of an acolyte to the Crimson King. I would love to see Henry Thomas take a crack at Roland, uh, because Roland is not a young character very explicitly so um and i think i don't know give henry thomas a chance to play a hero in a mike flanagan project and not some sort of terrible father uh for it once just elba was the um yes he in was the, the casting movie, in the yes. movie yeah which is not actually an adaptation it's kind of like a weird pseudo it's a weird pseudo sequel yeah uh when i read the gunslinger after reading gunslinger the more disappointed i am in the movie the casting was perfect for both Roland and Walter. Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey, fantastic. The concepts and the movie and the casting is absolutely wasted on what I, they did for the film. I thought my biggest problem would have been with Jake, but Jake's a good kid, so you start to really care for for the little guy, um, and so does Roland. And I thought I'd be disappointed with the concept of the gunslinger witnessing our world, but alas, that is present here too. Uh, he doesn't actually go to a world that's in the next book, which you get a sort of first chap- couple of chapters of at the back of this one, making the book seem a little longer than it is. Um, but I quite liked it. Uh, you would expect that the fantasy, western, and science fiction and post-apocalyptic stuff would clash, but it really doesn't. As someone familiar with the Fallout games, it kind of works just naturally. I, I um, would say that it would be an obvious fit. Like, it's all that sort of frontier, um, you're on your own, in a, you know, riding from town to town kind of thing. Well, I, I was more talking about, like, the mix of fantasy into that. Um, that just works. It just works. Because you get those glimpses to Roland's uh, youth, and that's, like, straight-up fantasy shit. And that's fantastic. He's managed to meld these different uh, genres into one Beautiful, disgusting, disturbing gunslinging exercise. I think it's fantastic. The gunslinger was great. It's only a, it's a pretty short book. Uh, with the first couple of chapters, well, he's with the first twenty-eight pages of uh the next book, uh, the drawing of the three. It's only about three hundred pages. Uh, so it's a pretty brisk one. Um, yeah, I can't wait to get onto the rest of the series, but I do have a book that we got for Christmas that I'll be getting onto next. Um, I will leave that discussion to when I've actually encountered what that book has prepared for me. Uh, but 
I liked That's the gunslinger. Unusual way of saying Reddit. <laughs> From what I understand, this next book I'm getting onto is more of a physical exercise than most oh, books yes, are. Oh yes, now I know what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> Do you see why I phrased it the way I did? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Because Red isn't the full experience with that book. You could have just said finished it. <laughs> yeah, I really like the Dark Tower now. I. I think it's incredibly compelling. I don't know how you get a full season out of this first book. They might have to mash it with the second book to make a full season of television, because quite a lot of this is internal monologue from Roland walking through the desert. My understanding is there is some, like, flashback stuff that happens later on in the book series, um, and that that were, or that one of the books is a prequel, but, like, that was going to be when Amazon was making the show a few years ago before they passed on it and the rights went mm. to Mike Flanagan. That was going to be like, it was going to be like a 25-year-old a actor because it was going to start at the very beginning of the chronology. Um, mm. So maybe there's some sort of... You see, I wouldn't do it that way. I yeah. don't... Chronological seems like the wrong tack to take with the Dark Tower because the, the flashbacks pop up when they should. And a lot of flashbacks are told as didactic stories so and the whole rambling western thing is quite an important narrative element and it this will be my last word on it it remembers something that i adore when it's remembered about a western it's not just deserts we do get sort of snowy mountains and shit i hate it when westerns forget that the american west was more than just dust and sand there's a whole frontier out there um but yeah, you could find The Gunslinger pretty much anywhere. It's been in basically every bookshop I've been in, so you can find the entire series pretty easily. A lot of it's revised, still in print, getting new collections compiled. I got some really good covers um, for this new lot. I hate the old digital photography thing they did for a lot of Stephen King's work, but these are, no these are nicely drawn and conceived of covers. I didn't get the movie tie-in version, though. I made sure to get one of the normal covered ones. Um, yes, so that is what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to The Hunger Games. We could do it, you know. Take off, live in the woods. They'd catch us. Well, maybe not. We wouldn't make it five miles. One courageous young man and woman for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th annual Hunger Games. It's your first year, Prim. Your name's only been in there once. They're not gonna pick you. want a good show. That's all they want. There's 24 of us, Gail. Only one comes out. So you're here to make me look pretty? I'm here to help you make an impression. 
And so it was decreed that each year the 12 districts of Pan Am shall offer up in tribute one young man and woman between the ages of 12 and 18 to be trained in the art of survival and to be prepared to fight to the death. This is the time to show them everything. Make sure they remember you. I just keep wishing I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me. If I'm gonna die, I wanna still be me. I just can't afford to think like that. That was the trailer for The Hunger Games. It is the first of four movies we're talking about today, the other three being The Hunger Games Catching Fire, The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, and The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. The first is directed by Gary Ross, and the other three are directed by Francis Lawrence, and together they are all based on The Hunger Games trilogy of young adult novels written by Suzanne Collins. The story takes place in a post-apocalyptic America, years after some undisclosed sequence of events ended the world as we currently know it, with the United States devolving into the nation of Pan Am, a brutal dystopia in which a series of 12 poor outer districts suffer under the yoke of a brutal and wealthy capital city. There was a civil war almost 80 years earlier, in which the districts rebelled against the capital's oppression, but the capital subdued it, wiped District 13 off the map, and, as punishment, implemented the Hunger Games. Each year, two children from each surviving district, one boy and one girl, are selected at random to fight to the death in a televised battle royale for the amusement of the capital. Only the last person standing gets to live, and they are then forced to mentor competitors from their district in future games. It's a sick form of state-sanctioned torture that's only gotten more twisted under the presidency of Coriolanus Snow, played by Donald Sutherland, who uses the games to quell even the slightest hint of resistance to his rule. As the films pick up, things are different. An unusual situation has presented itself in District 12. Katniss Everdeen, played by Jennifer Lawrence, volunteers for the games as a substitute for her younger sister Primrose, played by Willow Shields, when the latter is initially selected as the district's doomed female representative. Her fellow District 12 tribute is Peter Malark, played by Jean's mortal enemy, Josh Hutchison, a quiet boy with a a quiet boy with a crush on Katniss, who initially seems like he won't last five minutes in the Hunger Games arena. The pair are coached by the only living victor from District 12, Hamish Abernathy, played by Woody Harrelson, who drowns his PTSD with alcohol and has a deep resentment for the capital and its leaders. Katniss is terrified but determined, instructing her childhood friend Gail Hawthorne, played by Luke Hemsworth, but Liam Hemsworth. Uh, to look after her sister and her widowed mother in her absence. She decides she's going to do her best to win the games, but against her better judgment, she forms a peculiar connection with Peter, whose gentleness masks a canniness at navigating the bizarre pageantry that accomplishes the tournament. When they finally find themselves in the arena, however, the choices they make have unexpected reverberations across Pan Am. 
turning Katniss especially into a figure of resistance against the capital. Perturbed, President Snow moves to douse this spark of rebellion before it catches a light. He's clearly unfamiliar with the second movie's title, and events are soon in motion that will bring all of Pan Am into a state of war once more, with Katniss right in the middle of it. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on this movie? Why don't you start us off, On the entire franchise, rather. On the franchise, indeed. Um, So, why don't you start us off, John? Yep. Uh, Three, two, one, go. You forget how bloody grim these things are. Holy shit. I love a lot of what this franchise is doing. It's discussions of media, of propaganda, the way that thing stories can be invented out of thin air in order to make it more entertaining to the crowd. The fact that this is discussing reality television and the way that people form characters is brilliant, and it just gets better and more scathing of the media from then on. And yeah, it's great. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I'll second John. This shit's bleak as hell. Uh, the happy ending we get given, I don't really read as such. Um, I love the structure of this thing. I like how it's not just about propaganda. It's just about how conflict functions on a, like a human level. The stories we tell each other about why we're fighting, how we're fighting, why we should fight. Um, it's yeah. Uh, I really like this franchise. I always forget how much I like it until I'm watching it again. This was my first time watching it all the way through, and I think that it, as a coherent story, it really worked a, a lot better this time. Um, I will third everything that you said about the tone of this. Like, it is startlingly bleak. Um, and uh, I don't think it is... I agree with you, Harley. I don't think it is a happy ending, but I also don't think the movie presents it as a happy ending. And mm. Um, like that is, that is. That might just be how we were trained by the movie itself to See, feel about the things. Thing about <laughs> this is, this was part of the surgence of young adult fiction, mm. of these books coming out being absolute bestsellers, and then movie franchise being built off, built movie franchises being built from them. And part of the young adult fiction thing is love triangles. Who's she going to pick? Is she going to pick Harry or Ron? Who's oh, she going to pick? Right Jacob? into this, are we? <laughs> Who's she going to pick? Jacob or Edward? Yep. But that's not really what this series is about. Exactly. It's, it's way more than that. It's like, about... It's there as set dressing. It's there as set dressing. It's there to get butts in seats. Well, Harry Potter but, wasn't about the love triangle well, either. No, I for mean, sure. Twilight certainly was, but... Yeah, but like... Our thoughts about the Twilight love triangle are made very clear, clear in our enough. episode on that franchise. Edward was always the choice. Jacob was a loser. But like, what this is more about is trauma. <clears throat> and the way that someone can fall into a role and the way that people manipulate other people. Well, it's about and, televised violence. Yeah, and look, have I turned a corner on Peter in general? Sort of. And I will explain my reasoning. And I want to make absolutely I just clear... Think he, shut up. Okay. I want to make absolutely clear, 100% clear, I have nothing, nothing against Josh Hutchison. I don't hate the guy, 
You despise him. (laughs) (laughs) He thinks that Peter's hollowed appearance in the last two movies should have been real. No. No. (laughs) God, no. That was your favorite part. no. You were sitting there with a big grin on your face. That's the background (laughs) on your phone now. Okay, so these two like to make this joke. And they've made this joke every time we've spoken about Josh Hutcherson in a role. I've got nothing against him. I think he's a talented actor. I think he should get better stuff to be. Where has he gone? Uh, um, to Fast Bear's Pizzeria, Harley. Uh, yes. Well, that's not Th- great. I mean, he did that Hulu show, Future Man, for, I think, three seasons. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of... I mean, it's that young adult franchise hmm. problem. The, mm. When you're so bound up in the presentation of one character, um, you... Not uh, everyone's going to make it out. Yeah, no. you're not going to be able to. I mean, and he... Because he did all of these in such fast succession, um, he didn't really have time to establish an identity between them, even though he had done a fair bit of work beforehand. Bridge but you're to right, Terabithia. he sort of... Bridge to Terabithia or... Where John thinks he's the one who should have died. Exactly. Oh, you can... Um, Honestly, I think the joke's running a little thin. <laughs> what are you talking that- about? What joke, John? What are you... T- <laughs> like, you can't... You put on this... You doth protest too much. I mean, we've all seen the dartboard in the shape of Josh Hutchinson's face that you keep on the wall of your bedroom. Okay. I, I, just just get it out of your system. It's- just... Just run uh, down your carefully I will be list. in John's defence here. It is <laughs> vaguely shaped like his head. It could be construed as anyone else's head. Um, but uh, Get the jokes out of your system oh, now, because I, I want to have about. a reasonable discussion. He was the voice of Elliot the Littlest Reindeer in Elliot the Littlest Reindeer in 2018. Oh, so I don't know oh what we're talking shit, about. 2018. Yeah. Oh, no. That's oh, a he was so good in these. Now he's Elliot the Little Reindeer? Well, let's hope that uh, Five Nights at Freddy's well, he's helps got that, him out. He's got that Five Nights at Freddy's sequel that he's attached to, apparently. See, oh, that he was, didn't die? That was mm. why you... Yeah, exactly. Well, we all we knew about that, Harley, because that was when John lost, completely lost interest in going to see the Five Nights at Freddy's movie. <laughs> when Mate, he found out that Josh Hudson didn't die in it. I lost interest <laughs> in it the moment they announced it. Personally, I think it would have been Five much Nights more... at Freddy's movie? No I think, thanks. personally, I think it would have been much more narratively apt to my experience of the games, watching people play them, that he just dies almost instantly. Yeah. Like everyone seems to in those bloody games. Well, John, you're going to have to su- suppress your hatred for Josh Hutchinson and try and separate the art from the artist as this podcast continues. Um, but I'm sure we'll circle back to Peter overall, because I actually think his character arc is crucial to the entire story. Yeah. And the way that he his character works alongside Katniss's character is crucial to the entire story. But I do think that we should start with what all three of us brought up in our brief thoughts, which is this movie is, these movies are shockingly bleak. <laughs> like there is no glimmer of hope whatsoever. Like by the time you get, I was really stunned watching it because I saw these <laughs> movies in theaters. I haven't seen them since they came out. Um, and uh, this is the first time watching them all in a row. And obviously the world I mean, we harp on about it. I feel like we harp on about it sometimes, but it is true. The world is a very different place yeah. in 2024 than it, is, than it was in 2015 when the last of these movies came out. It wasn't great in 2015, but it wasn't the hellscape. That it well, is now. the phrase storming the capital meant something very different. Yes. Yes, my God. <laughs> um, but like... It instantly... It's, and it comes up 
constantly it in the last two makes, movies. It instantly makes you super suspicious of coin. You get you get the goosebumps up your arms every time it's they like say when, it. When she says it, you kind of get a Lauren Boebert vibe from President Coin now. When she says, all- "We're going to take the capital," it's like. Oh, I hate that coming out of you. Jesus. But also, even all of the even all of the whole you know reality TV thing Mm-mm. combined with the Apprentice kind of sort of celebrity, the pageantry of it all, the 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 use of the media as you were were both talking about the fact but- that Coin sells a night with the victors to his friends. No, Snow does. Snow does. Yeah. Snow does. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that has any real-world parallel that we know of. No, but, but it's still, like... It's got a bit of a Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, kind yeah. of... It, that's not the situation with Harvey Harvey Weinstein, no, but sort of but the predation of an older man on a younger... Commodifying younger bodies. celebrity bodies. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, like, very... And it's, it's so bleak, no one makes it out happy. Like, no one ends this movie happy, except maybe Plutarch. But like, oh, yeah, everyone, because Plutarch is laughing all the way to yeah, the bank. Because mate. Plutarch, played expertly by Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's not playing the Hunger Games. He's playing the Game of Thrones. Mm. <laughs> he he understands exactly where he needs to be to the point where it would make perfect sense if you were like, "Oh, Peter Dinklage playing Plutarch would have been perfect." But Philip but Seymour like- Hoffman again is excellent here. By the time you get to the end of the series, everyone's just in a miserable place. Like, yeah, yeah. Peter and Katniss are traumatised for the rest of their lives. It's exhausting. They're, they're taking every day at a time. Um, Prim, who is the person that Katniss volunteered all of this for in the first place, is dead. Gail oh, is implicated false flag in, attack, yeah, mind exactly. you. Exactly. Gail is implicated in war crimes. <laughs> um, and... The the Finnick new the, the new administration Finnick is dead. The new administration is essentially like Katniss ends up publicly murdering the incoming president because of how she's realised that they're just as bad as the people they just got rid of. She, and, she wants to institute a Hunger Games herself. Yeah, and the entirety of that last movie, the fourth movie, the entirety up to Prim's death in the explosion is pointless. <laughs> it has no impact whatsoever. Mm. It, all it is is them walking through this bloody labyrinthine obstacle course, getting killed off one by one by one. and then In increasingly she, horrifying ways. Yeah, and then she gets taken down before she can get to snow, and she just ends up in the same position that she would have been if she stayed at home. Like, think about <laughs> it. The, the liquid knife goo phase. Oh, yeah. I loved that. We, 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 Who we comes up with that, that shit? We rewound that a few times because, holy shit, that's some Hellraiser like, stuff. People well, die constantly when it's utter, utterly meaningless for them to do so. Well, that's my big question is, what is the economy of the capital? Because they, they make reference to these game makers who are responsible for that whole obstacle course at the end in that last movie but the sheer number of them like it'd be one thing if it was just the ones that they actually encounter i could be like okay maybe they're being funneled through this direction this is the most obvious route to get there all right but we see that hologram and there's literally like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that they've apparently put together in like 48 hours like and where that's is- not even the most recent data yeah and whereas the only time we actually see the game the game maker as like an employable position is um 
in the first movie and then Plutarch in the second movie. Like, it, it's just one guy who's running the Hunger Games. So what are all these other game makers doing? Are they – is it like the um, – the, Maybe the, there's an academy for them. Yeah, is it like the Bachelor of Philosophy degree? Like, it's just a pointless <laughs> degree that you can never find any work for, but then all of a sudden, finally, it's needed and <laughs> – a everyone lot of these people can come out of the woodwork. Yeah, everyone, well, that's how they got, they had these traps sitting around in there. And think about it. They're all like the biggest psychopaths yeah. too. Yeah. I love how the, the person is like, hmm, you know what I want to do my thing as? So, hey, Snow, I've got this idea. Morlocks. What? Oh, Morlocks. Well, like, let's creepy, get to that. They're underground creepy mutant, fishmen. Creepy no, mutants it's, who it's, live in the sewer. It's far worse than that, and the books the books go into this mm. a lot more. But them they're, they're mutts. They're what they call yeah, mutts, yeah. which is basically people that have been mutated, mutated. experimented on, um, turned into these things. So the dogs that you see at the yeah. end of the uh the first the movie, they are the other contestants. And in the books, they're not really dogs. They are the corpses of the other contestants reformatted into dogs. So they yeah. are these horrifying. Lovecraftian <laughs> body why, horror creatures. That's why uh, at the end of the first movie, their screams are like all of the other yeah. contestants. Because like, it's it's still them. That's fucked up. They, <laughs> turn, <laughs> they turn Jack Wade into a dog. This is a really fucked up series. <laughs> it really is. Because not only the fact that you're getting children all under the age of 18... Mm. And you're putting them into a battle royale. It's actually the least disturbing part of this whole premise. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You are throwing them in there with very little opportunity to get clean water, medicine, food. And you basically have trained these people in these different districts their entire life to be able to do one thing. One thing. And that thing might not even help them. Well, Peter's one thing doesn't help him. If you notice, his one thing is, well, two, two things. things, is he a big, strong boy, and also he's very good at arts and crafts. He does painting good and compensatory strength. Yes. Well, I don't, I don't think, I think it's sort of up to them to come up with something to do on their downtime, because you can't just have literally every person in all of these districts working on their survivalist skills mm, as sure. their job. Like, but, like, at the same time, it's not only torture that they're thrown into the games, it's torture every time a reaping ceremony happens. Because if you want enough food to feed your family, you have to put your name in. You don't have to put your name in, but you can fucking starve if you don't. So Why it's the hunger game. So it's not really a choice. So you put your name in. Out of all of your friends and family who could possibly get picked mm. between the ages of what? 12, uh, 12 and, and 18. 18, you get picked. Imagine you, you're 12 years old. You get picked. You're basically prim. You yeah. go to the capital. You are carted out in front of strangers, like a piece of beef on its way to the abattoir. You are wined and dined hey. by someone who you know as not a winner, but a survivor. Mm. You are thrown into a game not only with other poor people like yourself trying to survive, but children who have been fashioned into weapons. I do have to stop you there. You do get to meet Stanley Tucci. That's true. That's like, true. He really is going for it, isn't he? Like, it's like <laughs> Gotta completely... Love the I mean, he's leading with the teeth. 
<laughs> yeah, I, Caesar, I Fli- Caesar Flickerman is such a great character. I love mm. seeing him in the final movie because you can tell that in his mind he's he's doing the maths and he's like, okay, so if I, I ditch, d- I like, love- if I ditch, I will be murdered. If yeah. I stay, I will be murdered. Guns are being I pointed do- at him. I, I do love that. that- like that, that he is hosting these interviews and the the yeah. live news broadcast. It's like he's not at all suited. Like that, he's light entertainment. He's not a newscaster. Yeah. It's like getting RuPaul to do live coverage of nine eleven. It's not. It's not. It's like, like oh, hey, appropriate. No. It, it's like it's getting. Uh, Who do we want to send into the war zone? Osher Ginsburg. No, that's the pick. Uh, like, who are we sending into Ground Zero? I know. Let's get the guy who danced like a naked rat in traffic. Oh, shit, oh you're referring to the um, the Cinderella Corden. Amazon. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It took a while, oh, but I, I got I, there. I was thinking the one like, piece of public performance that would make me actually it's, snap. It's more like throwing in <laughs> Osher Ginsburg or Graham Norton or no James Graham Corden. Norton. James yeah, Corden. No, <laughs> it's no Jimmy it's Fallon. Like- be Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. He's he's too happy. Um, Caesar likes his own jokes too much for it to be anyone other than Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> no, I do think there's a bit of Graham Norton in there. It's definitely in, in the a, way that he's sn- able to get people to get some comfortable talk. Yeah. yeah. Well, how um, comfortable can you be if you're basically being pushed onto stage by gunpoint? Mm, could like, be worse. Ba- back to what I was saying. You've got all of this stuff. You're thrown into a game where chances are you're not going to get killed by another child. A fucking baboon's gonna come down and rip your face off. <laughs> or a bird is gonna scream at you with the voice of your mother. <laughs> or you get or you get stung by a hell wasp. Or you get stung by a murder hornet. Or literally the ocean rises up and drowns you where you stand. Or maybe or you drown in the fog. blood raining from the sky. Yeah, or it's acid fog. Or you're gonna get striped by lightning. Or it's going to be a dead person dog, or it's gonna be a dead person zombie. Or it's gonna be uh the what would what did we call it the liquid knife goo or it's gonna be just a fucking infection and then even <laughs> if you survive all of this shit all of this stuff you have you get to go out you get to not starve but you get paraded in front of all of these other poor people as the winner and you've got See, to do that-, that for the rest of your life. In that first games, though, almost always it's the contestants taking out the other contestants. Mm. It gets different mm. in the second one, but that's because um, Snow is trying to take out all of the victors mm. yeah. with the second one. And Plutarch um, is too good at his job. Yeah, but he's got to, you know, he's got to move to those it, pieces around. Got to make it. Got to sell it. Work. Well, he's just like, um, this is the Hunger Games I always wanted to make. So Plutarch's <laughs> like, well, I mean, we've got those two. Drug addicts, the morphlings, they're sort of well, he's written off. No, so is like, going to die. well, about half of them are on side. The other half. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he's got ha- half of them that would kill her if they could, and he's yeah. got to deal with them. But yeah, the, the bleakness of this story, as I think, kind of has kind of led it to being kind of underrated or misunderstood yeah. by some people. Because it's I not think it, like a, it's not a Twilight, it's not yeah. a Divergent. It does get tarred with that brush, doesn't it? And, and even in the way, and I agree with it, that it's it's impossible to escape the Battle Royale of it all. I mean, am yeah. I the only one here who's seen Battle Royale? 
I think so. I believe yeah. so. I it's haven't very, seen it. It's very, like, it is that. But um, it's, it's bleak in a different way. It's true that the Hunger Games stories, they are more glossy and they are more, I, I don't know, uh, mainstream. They're, they're more presentable, mm. but they're bleak <clears throat> in a different way. They're bleak in a way that is, you know, about a very Western perspective at the time, mm. which is you've got to remember that these books were written during the time when the Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. wars were getting really, really bad. Suzanne Collins is a woman who grew up during the Vietnam War. Um, this idea of the rich elite sending these kids to die for them um, and seeing it televised on television mm. every night, that is very much built up in the, the politics of the time that she was living in. Not only that, obviously, like you said, growing up during the time of Viet the Vietnam War, one of the first televised wars mm. um, to coming out um, when it did, 24-hour news. 24-hour war coverage. And what does that do, not just to the individual, what does that do to the society who's witnessing that violence 24-7? You see it in the casting, too. Donald Sutherland is a very interesting piece of casting because Donald he Sutherland is, is it. a massive hippie. Like, he mm. is hugely well-known for being a sort of very progressive, very left-wing kind of guy. So to cast him as this sort of fascist dictator. He um, wanted the role. He, he did, because he saw all of the politics on it. They have a special feature on the Blu-ray of the first movie, which is him reading aloud a letter he wrote to the producer, and it's him mm. basically deconstructing all of the stuff he sees and the way he sees it reflected in his own life and things like that. He was incredibly vocally opposed to the Vietnam mm. War um, when he was a young actor, to the point where in 2017... Um, documents were declassified after the statute of limitations on them went away, or not statute of limitations, whatever whatever law makes documents declassified after a certain period of time. They were but unsealed. They were unsealed to show that Donald Southern was actually on the NSA's watch list between 1971 <laughs> to 1973, because he was that loud about opposing the Vietnam War. Badass. Um, so... And he's it's, loving every moment he gets oh, in this. Absolutely. Like, he understands that character <laughs> in, like, in the way that he's not just a bully. He's not just a um, a dictator, but he's someone who has grown soft in the comfort of that. Mm. Uh, that he, this is a guy who walks around in, a, in silk dressing gowns and lives in a palatial mansion and tends to his rose garden and... Watches you know, the games with his granddaughter. Yeah, he is a guy who has uh, so, so far removed from any mm. piece of struggle. It well, was really you... interesting, I've got to say, watching the series, having watched the prequel so mm. recently. That's what um, I was going to ask. And seeing that version of Snow. Is it consistent? I think so, yes. Um, I'm, that... You're not getting the intervening years, of course, but... Yeah, that, that prequel so story is sort of him selling his soul to Mephistopheles. And is, by the is it just as bleak? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, he's the main character. It's literally about a guy who, in the end, decides that the the hard the way best is... best protocols become a snake. Yeah, the hard way is not worth it. I'm going to go the easy way and become a terrible person instead. Mm. Um, and, like, by the end of that movie, he's committed to becoming the person that he is in these movies. and. Mm. What I um, love about his performance, I love that f one of those f 
I love those final few scenes of him in the franchise. Like, he's talking to Katniss in his green house. He's like, I gotta admit, coin got me. Yeah. Like, and he's smiling the whole time because the way he sees it is like, well, well that's, she that's, played a better game than I did. That's the thing. Canonically, in this movie, he was like eight or not. Eight or nine, I think, when the Civil War happens. So he's mm. in his 80s. He's yeah. led a long, full life, most of it being pampered like a king and getting whatever he wants. It, like, at the end of the day, he's not, not losing a whole bunch, considering the amount he's, like, coughing up blood. Mm. Um, but like, I just love the look in his face. He, he's just like, well, she played a wonderful game, and gotta admit, I never thought she'd do that false flag. And, I, and it makes you... <laughs> like, the look in his face as he says that is like... like the way he Ooh. laughs when Katniss shoots yes. coin, it's like he sees the crowd searching towards him and you almost believe it's the way he would want to go. Yeah. Torn apart that, that by an he's angry like, mob. Torn apart and maybe eaten by an angry mob, sort of Immortan Joe style at the end of Fury Road. No, it's perfume style. Perfume <laughs> style, yeah. You can almost feel like he always envisioned that this was the way he dies. No, because at the end of the day, he's like, I win. Yeah, he does win. Like, that's yeah. that's the thing. Like, it it is the... um. If people are in agony, dis- he wins. Yeah, it's such a dispiriting <laughs> note <laughs> for the whole series to end on. And I think, like, it's deeply cynical on an ideological, philosophical, and political mm. level. This whole franchise is. When you view it in its own sense as as being this fictional world that this is all taking place in but when you apply the real world allegory to it as well like it there is no bright spot (laughs) well think about it i i i do see a lot of uh greek and roman names being used here yeah coriolanus plutarch we were saying battle battle royale it's not just battle royale it's theseus and the minotaur Mm -hmm. um you know the, the the young gets sent to crete yeah. To fight the Minotaur for the amusement of King Minos. Yeah. Well, it's as a sacrifice to the Minotaur, but yeah. Mm. Um, so Because someone just had to have sex with a bull. <laughs> that's, so that's the story. Yeah, I know. So that's um the, the I, th- I think that's actually a very classical sort of story. Mm. The sense that what's the worst thing that you can do to a You society? take their future. You take their future, and by taking their future, how do you do that? You take their children. And um, it's such a deeply, like, poisonous idea. And you see it in the real world, child soldiers and, and all of that stuff. Um, it is rightfully viewed as, as one of the worst things that you can do, one of the worst cultural crimes that you can commit, because it goes so far beyond the personal pain of, of the, the immediate person it affects and their family and friends, but, like, the stain that it leaves on the soul of a community. Well, there's not just that. There's also the sin of teaching children violence. Yeah. Uh, Districts 1 and 2, the concept of the career tributes. Mm. People who train day in, day out to become killers, like Kato, like the crazy lady who filed her teeth down into points. <laughs> who like, somehow, like, survived? Those those careers, they've been turned into weapons. Well, she, she wasn't on... The team with them and she was somewhere else in the arena she got lucky she, she got she just got lucky um and not but, only that but you're not only teaching violence you're teaching hatred you're teaching bigotry mm. which you see a lot in 
you know, the Westboro Baptist Church have started to dwindle since. But they know, they were famous. But for they that. were famous for teaching their children hate, and not only that, you're commodifying children as well. You're you're basically stealing the future away from them, even if they do survive. You're turning them into a product. Which is another thing that is done a lot in child beauty pageants, in mm. potentially some child actors. Well, also look at uh, the violence inherent in a lot of contact sport. Yeah. And how bloodthirsty fans of that can be. It also, like, there's an element of professional wrestling here. There's the kayfabe relationship between Katniss and Peter. That all of these, all of these different. It's a story like, within. Yeah. It's, of the Hunger Games You product. create your character that you present to the public. You have your costume, you have your nom de plume, the girl on fire, the baker's boy. Um, They have the themed costumes, for Christ's sake. You know how Joanna gets pissed that she's dressed like a tree every time? Uh, there's, there's all of that. Then there's the internal politics of how the tributes act around one another. Like, some have, like, deep abiding friendships... And others just despise one another. And that's one thing that I think, um, to move on to a criticism that I have of the series, these movies could really do with a Lord of the Rings extended edition style oh, yeah. um, sort of extended cut because there's so much world building and so much about Pan Am that we just never hear about it. We only get in dribs and drabs. It is, uh, you know, only the information that we need is presented to us, which keeps us from really seeing this as a re actual real space and with a mm. real history. Like From what I understand, the the lot, the, in Mockingjay, in the book, there's a whole bit where Katniss and Joanna are training. Like, mm. they're going through, essentially, oh, yeah, like, District 13 boot camp, and you get more of them getting to know one another. Finnick and that's also, also is a much bigger character in Mockingjay mm. than he is. God, Finnick is so good. But, like, someone like Hamish... Who you never mm. find really find out the backstory to, other than he's a victor. But yeah, in the there in is the, the idea. Um, let, I let Orson finish. Yep, go on. Yeah, he was in the court of Quell, um, the last one. So he was in the fiftieth, and the the gimmick because there's a court of court of Quell is when they have the gimmick. So the one we see is them bringing back all the you know survivor heroes and villain style, <laughs> bring back the the big names. But the like, champions bracket for his it was double the numbers, so mm. it was four from every district. And he was the last one standing alongside a, another girl. Um, he was badly wounded, was basically almost dead, but he'd found a one of those force fields that keep them from going beyond the places they need to go. And so he positioned himself in front of it, and when she threw an axe at him, he ducked, and it got flung back straight at her and killed her. Mm, he and, got lucky. Yes. And because Snow did not view that as a legitimate win, uh, he had... Um, Hamish's entire family killed. Uh, and so there's... Then there's that, also the Morphlings who basically yeah. hid. Yeah, that's what I'd be doing, frankly. Like I'd be just like that weird, weird little guy hiding in a bush somewhere, <laughs> hoping like, that, okay. that I don't get spotted. You don't run to the cornucopia. No. You just don't. No. That shit's a bloodbath. I mean, if I do anything, it is like I spend all my life finding out how to live off the land, and then I'm there for a few months if need be until the last remaining people die of starvation or infection. <laughs> you just outlast them. I love the idea of it going for months and Caesar Fleckerman being like, well, 
Now for day 60 of I the mean, to- 73rd Toby Jones, Games. Toby Jones is just leaning on the desk. Here's the kind of going, what the fuck? <laughs> Let's be honest, though. That's when they goose the um, the game a bit. That's when they pull yeah. in the mutant dogs and stuff like yeah. that. So. Um, but uh, that's... Um, like, there's so much thematic yeah, richness yeah. from even the all fact of this that, stuff. Even the fact that it is set in the far future, that it's a post-apocalyptic yeah. America we're seeing, that's not communicated in the movies at all um i do but like when you the look idea. at the landscapes it's yeah. like but it it makes you wonder also well what's like the rest of the world like what's europe like what's australia like what's asia like what's africa that's what like? i always think about post-apocalyptic yeah. things like i like the idea that zooms over to australia it's just mad max i i was gonna say what if it's just like america's it's just America. Like everyone yeah. else is doing their own thing, like you, like normal. America's the only place that's gone this crazy. Like you have, like, to, like, use a, you have to use a VPN to watch yeah. the Hunger Games. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like I said in the Doomsday episode, Wales is exactly the same as it always has been. But like, <laughs> I think that was like a, a. I don't know if it was a twist or a reveal or just a. It, it's a moment I saw for um, The Handmaid's Tale, which is not a show mm. I watch or have much interest in. But there's apparently a moment in that show where Elizabeth Moss gets to the Canadian border and um, just regular Canadian border patrol come over saying, clearly something they've done many times before, are you a political refugee? Do you need shelter in the nation of Canada? <laughs> they rehearse that. She day. says yes, and they bring it through, and it's just Canada. It's not like, <laughs> it's not a post-apocalypse, it's not a dystopia, it's not the far future, it's just Canada. And all of the stuff that's been going on in America is... Only Just in America, America. <laughs> and that I don't know how it's played in the in the but show or in the book that it's funny. based on, but it's such it's such a dark joke to hear it like that. Mm-mm. Like, <laughs> well, it's like let's talk getting, a bit about get like Mad Max gets on uh, um gets on a boat at the end and turns up in New Zealand and it's just Wellington. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah, they're, just they're go, all like, oh hey mate, hey bro, yeah. want some hey, fish and chips? Um. Let's talk a little bit about some of the characters. We talked about Snow a little bit. Let's talk about our leading lady, Katniss Everdeen. Yes. Um, um, I think a bit good place to start here, something I was thinking about a lot while I was watching the movies, is Jennifer Lawrence, just how good mm. she is. And I've, oh, yeah. yeah. And I've been thinking about it for several years, uh, but I don't think, and obviously it has happened, we can point to examples of it happening in the past, but in terms of me being culturally switched on and paying attention, I don't think I've ever seen a woman attacked and destroyed so pointlessly by the media than Jennifer Lawrence. Mm, like yeah. it's that the, the turn that came on her, let's be honest, after the photo leak, um, it's just bizarre. It's so bewildering to Yeah, well, and, and it's there part were, of there, a there, list. Were, there were those who were like, Oh my god, she had those photos at all and then you know, they turn around and were ravenous for it. It's yeah. disgusting. Well, it's the it, quiet part. That was the quiet part, I think. I mean, I don't think... See, the the party line now, if you go and see that, is, oh, she's not that good of an actress, or, oh, she's just got such a, a fake, smiley persona in interviews and things, but people it's People say all... the same shit about Brie Larson. People say yeah. the same shit about Courtney Love, Yoko mm. Ono. Yeah. All of these women who were vilified... Britney for just Spears and... Britney Spears, vilified for just being themselves. Even like Anne being... Hathaway. Got Anne it. Hathaway mm. is another example, but like specifically with Britney Spears, she was chewed up and spat yeah. out by an industry that didn't give a shit about her. 
and they were suddenly shocked when she had mental health issues or uh, breaks. Yeah. And what do but you I mean, expect? Christian Stewart was like that. Yeah. I feel like Madonna's gone through that a lot. Cher's gone through that a lot. I mean, and I'm just, I'm already read, uh, 15 years from now when we have the inevitable Laurenceance and people are like, oh, why was society, has society really been that terrible to Jennifer Lawrence? How did this happen? And it's like, well, yeah, it's been like, it's the same thing. Like, not like, to- It's recursive. This keeps happening. And yeah. it is this vein of misogyny that runs through the media that it- a lot of people don't like to think is there, but it is there. It's absolutely it, there. It was there during the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. It's going to be there in the future. It's something that is, uh, you know, it does occasionally pop up for male actors, but not in the same way. I mean, we already referenced Chris Pratt, but the Chris Pratt, sort of the turn on Chris Pratt is not nearly as pernicious and not nearly as mean. No, God, no. With Chris Pratt, people are just tired. Yeah. And there is a little bit about him that's, I I think, a political thing for people Mm. also, that he's... uh, suspected to be quite conservative in mm. a, a moment where the the internet crowd or a lot of the internet crowd don't like that but like the the ugliness of the um i don't i don't know there's just something about the way that jennifer lawrence in particular is the, this case study we're talking about the way that it it went at every part of her it went at obsession on her personal life it went at you know criticism of her career even you know the all of the ugly rumours and stuff that start floating around on the internet, stuff like that. It's, it's, it struck watching it this yeah. time yeah. because it, it was my first time really being cognizant of seeing that happen to a celebrity in real time. And um, it's here in this movie. Yeah. God damn it. Why does the Hunger Games have to be so prescient about everything? Um, yeah, and look, Jennifer Lawrence is a fantastic actor. She always has been. We talked about her in... The fucking Beaver movie. <laughs> yeah. You 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 know the one. Like the she's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. She's fantastic in that, but this was her big break. She would continue being great. She played Mystique, where she was blue and then she wasn't, and then was blue and then she wasn't. But then Red she was Sp- clearly getting tired. Yeah. Red that. Sparrow, mother. She's mm. dove well, into comedy as well with that new movie that she was in. Like, well, that's the thing she's too. Got is range. I think that she sort of finds herself in a similar position to Christian Stewart, which mm. is that everyone, the mainstream, knows her from a type of movie. Yeah. So they view her in much the same way we were talking about, you know, Josh Hutcherson or people like that finding it difficult to move on from an iconic character. Well, Christian Stewart is viewed as Bella. Um, yeah. In a lot of ways, Jennifer Lawrence is still viewed as Katniss, whereas. So they do these gigantic blockbuster movies, and so it overshadows all of their interesting independent work. Um, when because that was something that you know Jennifer Lawrence was already a well-established actress in sort of independent films when this franchise started. When she got the role, she was already an yeah. Oscar nominee for Winter's Bone, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she had made a name for herself. Um, well, in and, a lot and of during those... the franchise, didn't she have uh, Silver Linings Playbook, or was that after? That was during the franchise, but that was also yeah. I yeah, it's it's it was made by the Weinstein Company. It was sort of their big glossy awards play. It wasn't mm. the sort of like 
gritty, although that is the kind of thing that, you know, she has done a lot of now, like American Hustle or Joy or um, Mother, Red Sparrow. I mean, not all of those movies have been great. Not all of them have been good even, but like they are of a, a sort of ambitious and experimental type. But I think a lot of people just view her as the Hunger Games person and she sort of, I, I think, kind of gets wrapped up in the wake of the collapse of the X-Men franchise as well in a way mm. that none of those other actors are. Fassbender and McAvoy certainly aren't. Um, well, they but, had much, uh, much longer careers before yeah. that. Oh, yeah. But, but even the way Evan, that... P- Evan Peters, I mean, yeah. Nicholas Holt, yeah, Cody McPhee-Schmidt, like, you've got all of these younger actors who were in Dark Phoenix when none of the collapse of the X-Men universe was their fault at all. It was Fox. Fox was at fault for the entire thing. Mm. Brian Singer was partially at fault. Mm. Kinberg did his best to try and wrap it up in some way that was reasonable. Yes, John is the premier anti-Josh Hutchinson pro-Dark Phoenix podcast. I- yep. Okay, I go to bat for Dark Phoenix because I had a grin on my face the entire time. Because it's it goes into some really grim well, places. Well, primarily where Cyclops stole Magneto that he'd fucking kill him. <laughs> it's, um, it's a vibe that I hadn't seen from Cyclops before. It's but character. Anyway, from his character just generally. No, it is character. <laughs> yeah, but again, Jennifer Lawrence is so good here and she has to do so much. I do... Think that they get her screaming a lot, which must be exhausting. Uh, until yeah. until Peter nearly strangles her to death, and then she can't really scream for about half a movie. Gotta say, the performance on her recovering voice at the beginning of Mockingjay Part 2, mm, very well done. Side note, Mockingjay Part 1 was originally going to end with Mahershala Ali hitting him over the head, and that was going to cut to black then. Like that, yeah, when it they cuts to black that. and then fades back... They should have left it like that. I mean, I, I get their reasoning. I've seen the two-hour making of a documentary where they talk in great detail about how they just thought that for audiences who weren't familiar with the books, it was going to be such a what-the-fuck moment. And they didn't say it in the documentary, but also, like, if you don't explain it, then how do you market the next movie? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because yeah. it's like, no, how do you, I, I now Peter that. and Katniss are going on a mission as a capital. Hang on, wasn't he strangling her the last time we saw that? Um, yeah. But... Uh, but yeah, it would have been a stronger ending, I think. Let's talk oh. a bit about Peter and Katniss. Um, because I was like John the first time I watched these movies. Um, not in the sense that I developed a, a vicious and irrational hatred of Josh Hutchison, but in the sense that I found myself rooting for Gail. Um, and Oh, I, I, I flipped on this. I yeah. flipped on him hard. Like, the moment that he sort of started getting really bitchy about it i'm like dude she's trying to save her own life yeah sorry that she kissed someone on a tv show like he's like one of those guys who can't stand their and 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 also partner who's an she he's like one of the people who can't stand their partner who's an actor kissing other people on screen like that that whole time where he's getting all mopey i'm like dude you want her to be alive at the end of this right She's doing what she has to do. You think she enjoyed it in the first movie? But I think that was that the fact that we both sided, or not sided, but like that we both preferred Gail over Peter. In my instance, and I think perhaps in yours as well, John, other than, of course, your uh, deep and abiding hatred of Josh Hutchinson. I need for you 
by by some point <laughs> in this episode to state that this entire thing's a joke. Please. It feels like I'm being gaslit into hating him, <laughs> which I don't. I have said on countless occasions in so many different ways dude, that dude. I have nothing against him. Dude. <laughs> dude, what? Pete, the more you ask, he's not going to say it. <laughs> no, it's... Um, but uh, the the thing that I think makes the Peter thing work um, is that is seeing the development back to back to back to back. Yes, um, yeah. Because it's actually a really sort of subtle character arc. It's also sad. Yeah, it's and also it's, sad as shit. And it's in partnership with Katniss's character arc. So if you're not paying attention to the story as a continuing thing, if you're just coming in a year after seeing the last one, and you know, it's very easy for all of Peter's changes to sort of get caught up in the wake of Katniss's changes. Mm-hmm. Whereas really, they that those are arcs that are designed to interact. And work together, and um, it's it's almost like in the first movie you can tell that he he's got a crush on her, but he doesn't love her. Like you can tell that this is a thing that they've decided. Strategy. This is a strategy where they both can survive. He's got affection for her. He's got she's got affection for him, but it's not love yet. That starts burgeoning in the second movie. Well, I guess the struggle for me with Peter as a character is. For the most part, he's useless. Not narratively speaking, but he is basically being carried around most of the time uh, until the uh, last two movies when he's an active danger. That's when he's his most interesting because he's not hes not lying in the middle of a fucking creek having spent 12 hours painting himself like a rock. But I think that that's... Covering himself with moss and sticks. But I like, think that that's Specifically the point. that moment specifically that moment the fact that you see him working on how to meld into the background with a tree it's like when are you going to have the time for that i'm sorry when are you going to have the time clearly they're there for for literally days so you know Mm. yeah but he's gonna be spending hours being like and if he fucks it up he's like well wash that off try that again i do like the idea the simple fact that he is and I have to say, again, not a Josh Hutchison, it's a Peter thing. Why does he need to be able to decorate the cakes like that? The governors of District 12 wouldn't really be eating a cake that looks like a tree. I mean, just a hobby, I suppose. What else has he got? His parents hate him. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, who's going to eat a cake that looks like a They were your favourite parts of the movie, weren't they, John, was Peter's parents. It is very sad, and, and a lot of people have this theory that oh, oh, the decorated cakes get sent to the capital. Bullshit! They've got their own cake decoration people, and they show us how not gonna look like a bunch of twigs and a rock. They're going to look like a fucking caribou on fire or some bullshit like that. Like it's not the vibe of the capital for someone to walk in and be like, hmm, what are you eating with your? It's like, what are you eating with your tea? Oh, it's a cake the shape of a fucking... Well, I think you're missing what Peter's strength is. If Peter's strength... If we're talking about Peter's strength in surviving the games, then it's not actually that painting thing that you've, you've um, gone so hard on. It's his so ability to act like a wounded animal. No, but it's like- well, no, it's his ability to navigate the um, the pageantry of it all. He's yes, the one and, that and keeps that's the Katniss, part that I- 
Katniss alive in that sense. It's just the cake decoration thing just bothers me because it's it doesn't... literally mentioned twice in the entire it, franchise. I, I know, I know, but it doesn't make sense. Like Sean, everything else Sean, about him being Sean. able to understand the way that people are manipulating circumstances, the way that he's able to play up to the audience that this is a doomed love affair, the the absolute political savviness of him saying that Katniss is pregnant. <laughs> Got him. Pure that's genius. A, that's a baller pure, move. That is pure genius in a Mary Reed and Bonnie, you can't send a pregnant woman to the noose kind of thing. <laughs> Brilliant. A- absolutely excellent because instantly the crowd are like, oh. The crowd have gone ape shit on Caesar and he's they, just like, they're like, no, oh. don't do it to pregnant woman because apparently that's our line. <laughs> but An a- actual baby is our line. Actual baby is our line. Wait till it's 12, and then we'll willingly <laughs> let it get ripped apart by vultures with human faces or whatever. Mm. But it's just that that one thing. So and you can say the people that in the Capitol are pro-life. The way that it's Harley, depic- Not Harley, sorry. Jean, just, you know, liberally, how much screen time in the entirety of the Hunger Games franchise would you say that Peter's cake decorating skills get? It's just that the art directors for the movie did <laughs> no, such a good the, job. That wasn't the Let question that I asked. <laughs> Fairly short, but we hyperfixate, do we not? Us three? <laughs> we hyperfixate on shit. I wanted to find out a good reason why he's so good at decorating cakes. Because he was worked in a bakery since he was born. <laughs> We get a very good explanation like, on his sack tossing yeah, strength. We got strength. a very good, like, like this is the thing him, is that him he's being not able to pick up not, sacks of grain. That makes perfect sense. Yes. Like if but, if they showed that one of his skills was being able to cook, that would be different. But the fact that they show him expertly blending his arm into a tree and then blending into a rock <laughs> in in done. such a way that okay. he would have spent. Way too much okay. time on that. Okay. When, John, okay. As get, it is, I just want to break spending, this down. I just want to break this down really we, quick. Uh, we are spending too much time on, on this. The I way know, that I it's just, described like, in the book... You, you... <laughs> let me finish. The way okay. that it's described in the book is that he hasn't gone, like, the full hog. He has covered himself with mud and stuff, and he is hoping that he doesn't get found. Whereas here, he's actually had an entire team of makeup people sneak into the place... Do that up for him, and then he looks like he's blended in. I just enjoyed the stupid look in his face Fair when enough. he opens his eyes. Yeah. I just Fair think enough. it's very, very funny. Like, I, I think mean, the way it's I, depicted in the movie is... is so against the yeah. realism I mean, of if, what that's the, supposed to be. In the defense of the gimmick here, the he would be making cakes and decorating cakes because there is still a class system in District 12. There's sure. still the mayor... There's still all of the guards and the commanders and things. Mm. You know, they probably do um, have people who are coming looking at them for stuff beyond just. Well, and you also know, the other tributes coming on their their trips. Yeah, sure. and I don't know. Maybe Joanna likes eating trees, not yeah. wearing one. Um, and she would despise the tree being placed in front of her. And the uh, the the time it would take him to do. I mean, how long do we think that it took Josh Hutchison? in makeup to do it maybe 
you know, two, three hours. He's got a lot of time in his hands, Peter. He's sitting in the jungle. He's been there for days. Katniss he's has bleeding been out. unconscious. He's bleeding out. He's yeah. got a gut wound. Well, that's why. He's been sitting there drawing on his arm, and then someone's come up and shot him. <laughs> like, <it's... laughs> But, yes, like... Then they I didn't will, finish him off because it's not worth I it. I will agree with you, but like it's, it is no more problematic to me than the fact that Jennifer Lawrence, after many days in the jungle, still looks like a movie star instead of Tarzan, come out of the woods. Um, <laughs> well, you know, covered I, in I dirt do... and muck with hair, frizzy and all over the place. I mean, I know, John, that your hatred of Josh Hutchinson is rivaled only by your dislike of decorated cakes, but... Uh, <sighs> We gotta. We gotta. You know that move those on. are two things that I do not hate. I like decorating. This has cakes. been a long day. Yeah, we've we actually have had a particularly long and stressful day. So, I do want to say that with the first movie, I love the ending. I love the mm. way that Cato has him and just says, "Even if I get out of this, I don't get out of this." Yeah, and the way that he's basically come to understand that he was turned into a weapon and he doesn't know anything else. Which is the difference, I, I think, we, I mean, we talked about Peter being sort of a, 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 not having something that really makes him a real candidate to survive in the Hunger Games. I think that's the point. I think that's him in juxtaposition to everyone else, including Katniss. It's a thing that draws Katniss to him in an in interesting ways, that he is this innocent. He is He's this, a wounded animal. He, yeah, he is this, like, little Labrador puppy dog who, you know, even even the first time we see him at the reaping, right? And he's got on, like, his church clothes and he's got his hair, like, wetted down with a comb or something. He's the daggiest looking possible that you could you could be yeah. to, to see, like... Oh, of course that kid's going to get killed. And I think that yeah, that's gonna, the point. If you're in the crowd, you call up, nerd. <laughs> yeah. So Where's your that, pocket protector? That over the course of the series that he goes, goes on that journey with Katniss and experiences things with her that no one else has any concept of. They trauma and, bond. Yeah. That his view of the world becomes so much is informed by the same trauma and the same tragedy and that but that innocence and that sweetness that he has remains. I'm not a teenage girl, but I can imagine how that would be really appealing to a and teenage then, girl. And then the way that the capital grabs him, poisons him, <laughs> they torture Jack of Venom. They, they torture, torture the shit him. out of him. They did some real life his life. Chris Evans pre Super Soldier Serum um and he CGI lo- it's on effective. Him. Yeah. It, it it's looks very effective. so sad, and you're seeing, again, this pretty useless but genuine kid having been rendered feral. feral. And it makes it so effective when you get Josh Hutcherson straining against the restraints, when you have him have those momentary snaps where he... When he goes apeshit before the knife... Where uh, he throws that guy trap. into the goo, or where... He just starts muttering to himself because he's trying to keep himself present, present and situated. Mm. And like I spent this time watching through these movies, really watching him. And in the moments like where when a bull sees red, <laughs> like he's getting interviewed by Caesar, and you're seeing all of these moments where he's trying to get these small messages out. But by the last time, he's absolutely. A shattered human being. Well, before then, he didn't know about 12. Yeah. 
But the he's... twelve gets absolutely destroyed. And even by the end, you see him out in the field playing with their kids, and you can tell that he still isn't fully all there yet. He turns to Katniss, son, real or not real? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, that's something that they they talk about in the book is that apparently that sort of programming, the hijacking, it's still something he's dealing with. Mm. Every now and then, like he gets a moment, like a flashback, essentially, yeah. and he's got to deal with that. Like, and that's Katniss still has the dreams, the nightmares every night. I mean, these are that's why they work together so well. Gail, meanwhile, I mean, the, it seems very pointed actually in the epilogue that um, Suzanne Collins through Katniss, because this being first-person uh, narration, refers to him as long since moved on, now working as a TV anchor in um, District 3. Mm. Like No, um, he gets a well-paying job in District 2. Yeah, but he's on TV. Because he becomes some... No, no, he becomes like a security uh, person. I, was, I read really? that just the other day. Huh. I was reading something about him being on TV every now and again. but um, Well, probably as part of the, the security forces in District 2. Yeah. But, maybe, like, the... um. It seems pointed to, you know, sort of throw Gale off as being almost unaffected, mm. even by the false flag attack that he mm. may have had a part in. Like, even the... Um, she doesn't get that salty towards yeah. BT. Well, she doesn't BT really... BT doesn't know. Well, no, he BT's... does know, but um, I just don't... Like, she never even really talks to BT mm. after that I like moment. BT. So do I. I think that he seems a lot crazier in... Catching fire than he does in either of the Mocking Jays. Yeah. Mm. yeah, because you just um, see him and Wyrus just giggling like little goblins or whatever. Just well, it's because he off sees by the, the side se- talking in their own little secret well, twin language or whatever. Because BT sees the seams mm. in all of it, and he's fully aware of the plan. Yeah, so he's got that over everyone as well. Um, the uh, I love the second. I love yeah. the quarter quell. Well, I just the quickly. Arena. To finish off with the Peter thing, mm. um, and the Peter and Katniss thing, I don't like that epilogue at the very end of Mockingjay. I don't like it, and I understand why it's there. It's sort of it's something that book fans probably would have rioted over if they cut it. And the sentiment that Katniss expresses that she makes a list of all of the good things that she's ever seen a person do, and that that gives her the energy and the strength to continue. Um, I think the saddest line in that scene, and and I think. The line that might save that scene for me is when she asks her baby if the baby has nightmares. Because it's like, it seems like such a normal thing for a child in that world to wake up screaming. And it's so sad because even trying to conceive of what a baby would have a nightmare about is just Mm. a really depressing thought. Well, my pitch to you guys is that it should have... Just like Mockingjay Part 1, it should have stopped about a minute before it did. Yeah. Uh, that that you can re... I think it would actually have been really good to sort of repurpose that conversation that she has with the baby, that sort of I make a list of all the good things, because that's clearly a sentiment that is very important to the end yeah. conclusion of the character. But have her express that to Peter in one of their conversations um, yeah. in the house, in that montage at the end. But that the last shot should have just been... Her crawling into bed with him and him saying, "You love me, true or false, real or true. not real, real or not real, real." Cut to black. Yeah. Like yeah. that's all we need. That would have been a it, much more graceful ending. In fact, the coda makes me feel worse. Mm. Like in, a, I don't know why it just rings so false. 
Yeah, I mean, it has that sort of platform nine and three quarters kind of. It's very hollow. Yeah. I mean, the same thing happened with Harry Potter, that sort of coming mm. back flash forward years after because we've got to show everyone how all the characters are. I don't know. That one, works, that one works better for me. Mm. Um, because, because that's like uh, the adventure continues no kind more of thing a, with a new generation. Life has finally gotten back to what it should have been all along. But for Hunger Games, it just feels like it can't When go she's back. saying it, Katniss still has this thousand-yard stare out into the meadow that is so distressing. Um, Maybe it was because uh, Jennifer Lawrence was exhausted. I know that they did do this scene as a reshoot like a few months later and that's the reason why peter's wearing a wig instead of having dyed his hair again but um yeah on on the topic of katniss the symbol of the mockingjay i think there's a a very specific choice that suzanne collins made and it's very very clever because a mockingjay doesn't have anything to say for itself it mimics it takes in information and spews it out. That is why they want her as the Mockingjay. I do think it's a really, vehicle yeah. for their words. I do think it's interesting how Plutarch is it Plutarch who says it or is it Hamish that Coin actually wanted Peter. Peter. Mm. Because Peter can talk. he could actually be controlled, he could be moved in, into position, but Katniss is too much her own person to be manipulated. And I think that's shown with all of these propaganda sequences that we get Ugh. of them going out to these bombed places, them going to District 12, seeing all of those, again, very grim, all of those skeletons mm. from the fire bombings. And it is so interesting because we are seeing behind the scenes of the revolution. How do they get their message out there? How do they play the media game? I do love the uh the sort of like little trailer thing they show to all the people of District 13. Yeah. It looks like it's de- it's definitely promotional material for the movie. <laughs> you can see it, it's so obvious. But I do love the first time they try to get her to read Plutarch's words. She just <laughs> can't do it. Can't do it because it's not real. Everything about her is her reactions to actual events actually happening mm. to her. I think her most compelling moment as a revolutionary figure was when that guy from District 2 had the gun to her head and he asked, why shouldn't I kill you? And she says, eh. She's like, I can't give you an answer to that. She's just like, mm, I don't know. You Lawrence may as is, well. Lawrence is very good at switching it on. You know, she's yeah. got mm. a real screen presence. She's a movie star in the classical sense of the term. She can take over the screen. Um, but she's she also that. playing a character who's very who finds a lot of difficulty with people. Yeah, I love that moment with that guy holding the gun to her head because she again has this sort of like she doesn't really care if she dies or not. She's got sort of got that in the second movie as well of if death is coming, sure, but don't let Peter die because mm. in her eyes she killed a bunch of people and feels terrible about it. And Jack Quaid gets a very easy payday for the second movie. <laughs> I think that's repurposed footage. I know, but like, shows up for a split second. Yeah. It's Marvel. The, um, let's talk about some of the supporting characters. I mean, we've mm. talked about 
the heavy hitters mostly. But Effie is the next Brilliant. one we haven't talked about. Um, Always lo- on. Yeah. But I, I love how the um, they use her at the beginning of the series, that, that sort of first appearance of her amid hmm. the dust and the mud and the grim faces of District 12. And if here it's just comes a splash this, of colour. It was essentially an, a 19th century French aristocrat. <laughs> like, <laughs> just done up in this, the all these ruffles and wigs and powdered face. And it's something that is continued, especially in that first movie, when they get to the capital, is that they essentially present the the citizens of the capital as monsters. Visually, they're monsters. Mm. They're not human. They are done up in these, you know, all of these wild and crazy hairdos and And the only one not dressed as Lenny like, Kravitz is Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was really interesting, but I who, actually... Who do you think fares the worst in the capital makeup? I have a vote. I think it's Toby Jones. Because everything about that look he's giving screams Eraserhead to me. <laughs> and, like... Just the fact that his hair looks like he's the queen of fucking hearts or something. No, you can tell that when the cameras go off, he's like, Pop, I'm going down to the pub. I don't know, Tigris, the tiger lady in the last one, is not... It's unsettling. uh, Yeah. She actually, you find out in the prequel, that's actually Snow's sister. Snow's cousin. Cousin? Cousin, yes. Cousin, sorry. But they're close as siblings. Yeah. They grew up in the same household. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I think that Effie's a really interesting character because she does show it's this again this little subtle character arc in the background that she's like I she she's been part of this machinery for so long, but she's never ha- actually been confronted with it before. Well, she's been confronted with it, but she's never actually seen someone that she's worked with win. Like yeah. that's the thing is she's been in District Twelve doing the District Twelve beat, and this is the first time since Hamish. Um, which is, you know, look at their ages, you know. Um, this is the first time she's seen someone win, and so she and she's grown attached to them, she's grown invested mm. in them, and you do get uh, the impression that this is that they've come together as a unit a lot mm. more than the previous ones did. I do like that scene in the second movie where she's like, I have my gold hair, Katniss has her gold pin, I need something gold for my boys. Yeah. And um, like, oh my god, at that moment I'm like, Effie, you're so like, precious. There are so many moments where she is the queen of extra, but I love that moment between her and Plutarch. And it's played brilliantly by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Elizabeth Moss, where he goes to her in District 13 and says, you know, you see this? The door opens from the inside. You can go anywhere you want. I do love you're how You're not he, a prisoner. He's got this, these like overalls on that everyone's got, got on, but as the Mockingjay movies goes on. She keeps finding ways to accessorize or to wear yeah. them differently. To and like the line that she says, like, like oh, it, she used the um, used a scarf to turn it into this. Uh, Everything old can be made new again, yeah, like democracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like she's not in saying, that book. Yeah, she's. Oh really? No. Well, she's in it very, very briefly at the very, very end. She is the one that takes um, Katniss to. Snow's Palace for the vote on the uh, whether mm. to have another Hunger Games thing. But that's the first time Katniss sees her since she enters the arena in Catching Fire because mm. uh, she's not evacuated by Plutarch in the books. She oh. only turns up in that one scene and she's described as as 
being chipper and being well, but seeming hollow and seeing, seeming traumatized. Mm. Um, what they did, and, and it was a smart choice of adaptation, I think partly just to sort of keep the good times going with Elizabeth Banks, <laughs> but also yeah. because... Yeah, she Elizabeth is a, Banks, not Elizabeth Moss, two different people. Yeah, she yeah. is a combination of... in Her role in Mockingjay is a combination of, I think, four different characters. Um, mm. It's sort of like a support team that yeah. uh, Katniss is given, makeup and uh, stuff like that. One of them is Plutarch's assistant, I think. Um, so... I think that's a. It's much more meaningful than it's Effie. Yeah, it's a smart blend. Although at the same time, I actually think that there's something kind of bleak and chilling about the fact that you just don't see her until at mm. the end, mm. and she's you know forever changed because she's she's been held in custody under yeah. the Snow administration, and she's only just been let out under Coin, who mm. was not sure. Like Plutarch had to convince them that uh, she wasn't working with Snow. Or wasn't an accomplice essentially, but um, I do, I really like uh, Sinner, the designer's last act of defiance mm. with the, the Mockingjay wedding dress, mm. the total F you to the capital that that was, yeah. Um, and also his final gift to Katniss to show that he's still rooting for her is the Mockingjay armor, mm. uh, which in the movie is kind of a disappointment compared to how it's described in the book. Um, there's a little more blue to it. There's a bit more going on. There's like to a be helmet. Fair, though, there's she like has a, to a helmet of, and everything. To be fair, though, she sort of has to blend in with the fact that the yeah. districts, she, the districts that she is going to, are all the stone, this grayness. So she sort of has mm. to blend in. I think in terms of side characters, Haymitch, as we spoke about before, is a very interesting one. That he's he like the Morphlings has been self medicating. Um, Finnick is really interesting. Finnick O'Dare, he's a real one. Goes out like an absolute champion. He's fascinating yeah, because he's dealing with... He has to help Madge because he's not going to let her... Mag, yeah. Mag. He's not going to let her die because, as Harley oh, told me, yeah. the deal with her is that she has trained every single... Champion from champion District 4. Since she was in the games. And not only that... She teaches the young ones how to fish. She teaches the young people how to fish. So Phoenix sees her as a mother, a mother or a grandmother figure, and the way that she just grabs his face, kisses it, and then and walks away into the fog, and then walks back into the mist that turns you inside out. <laughs> I will say she's an old woman, but we should have mm. had more old people in mm. yeah. that well. If they're really taking it from former victors, then it really seems like it was weighted to all of the victors from the last 24 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think I would have liked to just see a few more old people kicking it around the place. Mm. But Like some dude with a knife cane just mm. going about absolutely wrecking fools. I don't, it would have obviously changed so much with the Katniss Peter relationship. I actually think it would have been really interesting to see Haymitch in the arena. Yeah. I actually see think... how he operates under fire. Yeah. There's a vert. See well, him uh, go absolute cold turkey in during the game. Well, it'd be. Oh, I wanted him. The first time I saw Catching Fire, I was like, Haymitch, 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 Haymitch. Because I really wanted him the moment he gets into the arena. Game on. Like, See, I feel like narratively, though, if you put him in that circumstance, then he becomes 
Obi-Wan or Dumbledore or any of these characters where the ebb and flow of the narrative then brings you inexorably to the fact that he needs to be killed off. Yeah. Yeah. Like, him going in there necessitates his death sacrifice. He's he's too stabilizing a force for Katniss if he is there to help her and support her. Whereas with Peter, he's endgame. You can't kill him. You can torture the shit out of him, but you can't kill him. He's also not... She's the bodyguard, not him. Yeah. Yeah. He's less useful than Haymitch. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk um, just, a little I, bit about. Sorry, I love the design of the the second arena in Catching Fire. Yeah. The whole clock thing, so clever. Uh, they definitely e- lean into the gimmicks of the arena mm. gimmicks. Even when Plutarch has a plan to extract them, he's still gonna put his all in. He's not gonna phone that crap in. Well, he has to make sure that people don't suspect him until well, he's ready to bug out. I didn't suspect him the first time I saw it. I'm like. Oh, you clever prick. The moment he shows up at in the plane at the end, I'm like... Mm. Moves and counter moves. It's the entire thing he was talking to Snow about. And if you watch imagine it, Snow, the, Imagine Snow's face the moment he finds out Plutarch is dead. he's it, like... If you watch those scenes he has with Snow, knowing the twist, you see the moments where he is subtly and not so subtly using what he knows about Snow to manipulate him into position. John, he can he talks circles around Snow, convincing him to do what Plutarch wants. Yeah. Well, but it's because what he's saying actually does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that he's got he's he's moving things into a scenario in which if it were not for the fact that he's already preempted his own work, then it would actually be doing exactly what he says to Snow that it would be doing. Um but the uh Let's just say he, that, that's where I Philip wanted to. Philip Seymour Hoffman was perfect. Yes, that's where I wanted to move was to Philip Seymour Hoffman because obviously he passed away during the production of this. He had about a week left to film. They had to um, obviously make do. They there's a couple of shots that mm. I watch and I think are um, him composited in from other scenes. There's a, him of him. There's the Phoenix, bit right at Phoenix. the end when he's smiling. Yes, and he stands up to leave. And then there's the bit of him and Coin at Phoenix's wedding. Yeah. But I think that shot seems it. But, like, the big thing that was lost um, was uh, the... That final uh, conversation with Katniss. Yes. So that letter that Hamish reads from yeah. Plutarch was just Plutarch speaking. Yeah. It, um, knowing that um, Hoffman died during production makes that is painfully yeah. obvious in that moment. And you can see it on Woody Harrelson's face that... Like, you, you can almost read it as someone else should have been here doing this scene. Yeah. He should have been, but I'm here now. Yeah. The I know AI is a, a thorny issue, obviously, but the circumstances like that are circumstances, obviously, with the prior consent of the actor in the initial contract they sign. And the, the family. And the family. Well, no, not the family. If the actor themselves has said, of, when they're of sound mind and sound body... Mm. Yes, I'm okay with this. I don't see why the family should be able to turn around. Well, and say in no. the in the instance that there is no agreement, yes, I, I'll, I would argue that in the instance that there is no agreement, then we shouldn't be resurrecting people. But yeah. in the in an event like this, where Philip Seymour Hoffman had signed on to the movie, or an event like Carrie Fisher, she signed on to a movie, and it wouldn't surprise me if it got to this point that there was a clause there to say if you pass away during the making of this film, um, we have the right to create and i i get that and if i was an actor you know i'd probably be very very concerned about giving someone a scan of me 
Um, mm. But at the same I'd time... I'd be concerned I... that they went up to me and were like, hey, so we've seen the way you live your life. Um, <laughs> we've spoken to your doctors and we think that this would be a good thing to put in the contract. I would be doubling my security. I well, would they... be making damn sure... You see, you, see it in the con- you see it in the contract sh- signing, it's like, excuse me? Yeah. I mean, it's just, what it's do just you basic. What's gonna happen? Like, it, so many of them have like good behavior clauses and stuff yeah, as well. Yeah. It's it's not to, um, it's not because they yeah. think that yeah. something's gonna go down. It's just literally because of the amount of money that's involved, that's on the line. Um, you want to cover your bases, but yeah, yeah. I think that I think that there's an argument for that. Yeah, like that's basically the only time I'm interested in seeing a a digital actor. That and like if you get a stunt that it's too dangerous to even yeah naturally. get a stuntman to do. But um yeah, it's an, I'm I'm just waiting for someone to try the unholy idea of making a biopic with an AI recreation of the real person Ooh. and their voice. It's gonna be so. Creepy. It's gonna be upsetting. Yeah. It's gonna rest right in that uncanny valley. It's gonna make a home there. See, and the thing is, no matter who the actor is. You're going to eventually find another actor who looks like them. You're going to. Yeah. It's going to happen. Mm. Like, and even well, that's then, part you can, of, that's you can part put of the... someone in makeup mm. and get them as close as possible. Well, that's part of the difficulty with the biopic, especially for people who have already passed. It It's less concerning than with AI, but still, it's it can feel strange, you know? Well, there's something yeah. to be said yeah. about the difference between someone... Okay, so... I don't someone know. playing a role in a computer yeah well I, I don't know jennifer hudson playing aretha franklin it's one thing to see a person and see like that's jennifer hudson she's she looks like aretha franklin because they've made her look like aretha franklin i can suspend my disbelief because i'm watching a movie yeah. but that's jennifer hudson and i can see that there's something else entirely to mm. making a photorealistic version of a real person and having them say things in situations that way we're never in yeah um that then to the untrained eye could be interpreted as being a real historical document. Yeah. I mean, thank God they didn't get the CGI creations at the end of The Flash to speak. Otherwise, that would have been... Like, I legitimately see that sequence as one of the big things that sort of... I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see if there's any correlation with that and all of the talk about AI and the strike. I'd be fascinated to see if that had any effect at all. But I think with Philip Seymour Hoffman as Plutarch, to get back to the main topic, he plays the character with such a canniness. He's so many steps in front of everyone else that it's almost scary when you see him still kicking around, still standing in the background. And when they say, I think the only person who's ever won the Hunger Games is Plutarch. Yeah. Well, it's true. He's the only one who understands the world that he lives in. Everyone yeah. else doesn't. Snow everyone maybe is, does. Everyone but... else is trying to make the world what they want it to yeah. be. Snow Ev- has become too comfortable to really yeah. understand. Plutarch is the only one that always has an accurate read, mm. which is, you know, an interesting approach. I do think we've been going on for quite long, and I, I do think we need to start wrapping up soon, but I want to talk about some of the sort of production elements here. Because we've talked, obviously, a lot about narrative and character. Um, but I'd like to to mention the sort of flow of the movies. Um, 
and and maybe we all do our rankings of our favorites you know we'll leave that for a bit though but i i do think it was a mistake to cut the last book in two uh i think it ends up with kind of an overlong um drawn i was out. getting that feeling yeah but the first part in particular very little actually happens like in terms of mm. plot very little happens if you adapted Mockingjay Part 1 down to 45 minutes and you put it on the front of uh, Mockingjay Part 2 for an all-in-all three-hour movie, you're golden. Um, yeah. well, but I, I it, think that it... It made it a really tough watch, I have to say. Hmm. Considering how bleak everything is, it was kind I, of relentless. I mean, it's following the leader, obviously, isn't it? I mean, it's following Harry Potter, it's following Twilight before it. Um, the, the Divergent would try and slip in under the door but faceplant instead... Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's the, never not going to be funny to me. Yeah, like whenever it, we scrolled down on Stan and we saw Divergent, we were like, "Oh boy, I'm so sorry for you." I'm kind of excited for when we get to that, honestly. But it seems almost almost like they got in a, in a trap where they were like, um, "To have it be a two parter makes it big and important." Capital B, capital I, big and important. Yeah. And now that Harry Potter's done it, Twilight's done it. If we don't do it, does that mean we're not the phenomenon that those are? You know, it kind of seems mm. almost like an ego thing. Yeah. Um, Maze Runner was smart. Yeah. They didn't do it that way. Um, oh, they saw which way the wind was blowing. They got They, they saw what happened to Divergent and were like, <laughs> hey, you know what? We're not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've got too much to lose. We're already coming in third place in terms of post-apocalyptic throwing children into war scenarios. <laughs> so it's like, hey, you know what? Hands off. We're going to just Look, do... To be fair, properly. Maze Runner comes out a lot better than Divergent does. 100%. Maze, Maze Runner operated within its means. Like, exactly. It was never trying to be a phenomenon. It the kept first, its dignity. the first, the first Maze Runner movie only cost thirty-four million dollars to make. Mm. Like these were, in comparison, much lower budget. Like the second one was sixty-one million dollars, and the third one was sixty-two million dollars, and none of them mm. ever made more than four hundred million. So, that's, like, that's they, respectable. Yeah, they knew what they were, and they they stuck with it. They every one of those movies made at least three times its budget. Um, can't you be, can't ask for much more than that. Can't be no. angry about that. But, but on uh, the technical side, uh, before you continue on, I want to talk about James Newton Howard's score for these, if you weren't already going to talk about them. Not only the moment-to-moment incidental music, but the use of the leitmotifs diegetically. The uh, Flickerman's show's theme is perfect for what it's meant to be. The little jingle that happens whenever the propaganda is starting is I chilling. Lo- I love the uh, the little music that happens in the in-memoriam sequences. <laughs> yes, I love that too. I love the great. music used for the use of the Mockingjay call. The fact that that's incorporated into the music and the entire Hanging Tree sequence mm. is just Pure gold. I like how it, it starts as something legit, then turns into this propaganda bullshit. But mm. at the same time, you've got all of these... Yeah, it turns into propaganda, but then it turns into action. You see a bunch of people blowing up the dam. And it was at that point where I sort of turned to 
mum, because mum was watching this one with us, and I turned to Harley and I said, this just goes to show that people don't get radicalized for absolutely no reason. There's always an explanation. an explanation as to why someone does political action of that kind. Hmm. Like, there's always a reason. It doesn't have to be a good one. It doesn't have to be one that fits in with... It doesn't have to be logical. ...morals, but there's it's always very... a reason. Well, it doesn't have to be logical either, because it's very rarely logical. It's emotional. Exactly. Um, I do love the part where all of the people from the tree district, I'll just call them, the... The Earth Nation, they climb, they lead all of those people into the woods, and they climb up the trees like monkeys, and they just set off the bomb and blow all those people up. That's such a cool moment. Well, there's the sort of fatalism of it, too, that they are, mm. re- they are perfectly willing, and they know that so many of them are going to be shot down while oh, they're yeah. climbing those trees. But, anything's better. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, obviously, the change in director after the first one. Yeah. Which I think props to Gary Ross, his casting and the aesthetic that he created for the world, pretty impeccable. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I will say that I think he goes a little too cartoonish with some of the capital fashion in that first movie that they mm-hmm. make a little bit more real in the later ones. But like in terms of setting up the world, brilliant. And in terms of understanding that it's a serious, bleak story that needs to be treated as a serious bleak story and not just a YA fantasy thing. Mm. Um, that's That was crucial, I think, in setting the tone. But the cinema verite style he's doing, where he's waving the camera all over the place and he's barely showing anything... Um, it's nauseating. It's nauseating. I get why he's doing it, because it's kind of placing you in Katniss's perspective mm. of a lot of that. Um, and he's also doing... I, th- I think that first movie especially that scene in the cornucopia, that is a very violent sequence. And I think he's actually using that style of shooting to get away with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, and it makes sense for the cornucopia bloodbath. Yeah. Like, that. I will defend that part, but the shaky cam use in the rest of it, that kind of stretches it a bit. Um, but Francis Lawrence coming in, and he also did the prequel earlier, well, not earlier this year, last year now, um, he brings a, a more of a classicism to it. He keeps the tone, yeah. he keeps the atmosphere. Um, he keeps the excellent casting choices with people like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Sam Claflin and Jenna Malone, but he makes it a little bit more of a of a sort of... He makes it a little bit more of an omnipotent view or a classical yeah, yeah. view, a theatrical view, rather than a first-person one, which what Ross which was I- doing is actually quite interesting considering that the mm. book itself is first-person. That he's trying so hard to put us in Katniss's point of view. Yeah. But I think in the end, it, you know, I appreciated it while I was watching it. And if it was just a one movie story, I could have yeah. gone with it. But considering there can be I've a eligibility watch, issue yeah, for that. Cons- considering I've got to watch another three of these. <laughs> like, <laughs> need to calm it down, mate. Yeah. Um, no, I, I fully agree with that. And the movies still look really good. Yeah. They, they still the hold up remarkably. One- the first one ages a little bit in those wider shots of the capital, but after that, they... Well, to be fair, the first one is a solid. decent bit cheaper, I would imagine. Yeah. They, I mean, they didn't well, know they had a sure thing. Well, you also, like, this this franchise is essentially the franchise that saved Lionsgate. Lionsgate oh, yeah. was in real trouble at the time that this movie came out, and it was a Hail Mary pass to get this... Um, 
get the rights to this. They were, I think I remember reading somewhere that they were actually cutting the budgets of other movies to get this one done. Um, and That's desperation. Yeah. And it, it, like, it basically, it, it saved them. Like, that first movie only cost $78 million. Um, mm. And which in the, in the scheme of what a 2012 blockbuster cost, I mean, Avengers is already out there. I think $200 million. The Harry Potter movies are costing $180 million. Um, I'm just pulling numbers out of thin air, but they seem around what I remember. Um, like, it is considerably cheaper, and, you know, it goes on to make $695.2 million. So, really, yeah. The the film that saved Lionsgate, I do think it's interesting that um, none of them ever made it to a billion, which is not what I... Yeah. Yeah, you'd think, given the cultural space that they occupy, that one of them would have, because it seems like that kind of a franchise, you know? That's um, true. But no, it, it never never got that far. Um, the the most, um, the highest grossing one was Catching Fire. Um, Catching Fire. That makes sense. That top, makes sense. Topped out at $865 million. Um, mm. And I suppose that's as good a place to end our discussion is, uh, with, with, is to rank the movies on our, our own. Um, I'll start us off. Catching Fire is my favourite. Uh, I think that's yep. the best film. I would say that the first movie is the second best. For me, I would slot the prequel in at number three. Uh, and then I would do Mockingjay Part 2 and Mockingjay Part 1 as the weakest. Uh, for me, Catching Fire, I friggin' adore the quarter quell, not only the concept and how they executed, but also the arena. Uh, then it's number one, because I think um, The Hunger Games as a structural element is very compelling. Because we get the first of is the pre-show stuff, and then we get the main event. Um, then it's Mockingjay Part 2. Uh, then it's Mockingjay Part 1. Because Part 1 is merely setting up the stuff that will become relevant in Part 2. Yeah, and, and we, ha- we haven't seen uh, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, unfortunately. We'll, we'll be getting to that when we can. Because yeah. everything I've heard about it makes it sound fantastic. I, I know, I'm basically going there for Viola Davis. <laughs> Peter Dinklage too, like the two of yeah. them are fantastic. Yeah. Um. For yeah, I think Catching Fire for me, there is something so fantastic that we get that it it delves way more into the media criticism side of things. It's able to build thematically off of what they did before, and it shows that even if you're out of the arena, you're still in the games if you've survived. That you have to go on these propaganda tours. The fact that it's essentially two movies in one. You get the aftermath from the first one, but then you're thrown into the quarter quell. And the way that that arena works is just so visually brilliant to me. The fact that it is this wild swing from what the first one was, which was just the woods. Here it is, the arena itself is trying to kill you. For third place, I think, yes, it is the second of the Mocking Jays, because you really do get all of the great character stuff. You get all of the stuff between Peter and Katniss. You get way more of all of the discussions of propaganda and stories that people tell to make themselves feel better about what they do. And then, because we haven't really, we haven't seen Songbirds and Snakes, I will say 
that I would put Mockingjay Part 1 at last place. So we're all pretty comfortably Catching Fire, Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, Mockingjay Part 1. Um, so now, why don't we move on to do our uh, Muppet recast for the Muppets Hunger Games parody film. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence remains, naturally. Yes. So I was thinking this through. I think that the obvious pick at the very top of the totem pole there is Snow, and that's Uncle Deadly. Like, finally, that that's a role for Uncle Deadly right there. Finally. Um, Effie... Is Miss Piggy. Miss Piggy. Because she's essentially yep, already Miss Piggy. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot find a more perfect pick. Um, for Hamish, I went a bit off the beaten path here with my thinking. And uh, Floyd Pepper, the yeah. the red-whiskered... Um, okay. Okay, I see it. Like, uh, I can see him leaving the 60s being completely burnt yeah. out. I can see him being yeah. like, he made you sound desirable, man. He did you a favour. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see him as the kind of he's he's washed up. He's seen too many of his friends die, mm. and yeah, I he, like he that. He trained animal to go into the arena. Yeah, yeah, I um, like that. The Jeffrey Wright character is Bunsen Honeydew. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and why is Beaker, Beaker the Amanda Palmer character? <laughs> Naturally. Um, I feel like. I feel like the people you keep are Jennifer Lawrence and Liam Hemsworth, and then Gail yes. is the little frog. Not, not, not Gail, sorry, Peter, but Peter is the little, is the frog. little frog. <laughs> the little fragile one that's yeah. easy to knock or over. Or Walter, from a like cow. one of the two. Actually, no. I Wal- love the image of Walter trying to throw a big sack of grain. Well, no, the, the, little, the little frog can. Kermit, you have as a Stanley Tucci character. <laughs> See, I was thinking you keep the Tooch. He's no, already no, no, no. a Muppet. I was thinking instead of Kermit for Flickerman, Fozzie. Here, here are all tributes. Yeah, yeah. He's got the whole showman stand-up routine going on. Kermit is coin. <laughs> He's in a wig. He's just in a wig. <laughs> He's in a wig. I like that. A little against type for Kermit, but he can do it. Okay, Plutarch. Maybe Kermit for Plutarch, actually. No, I like Kermit as coin. I I love the idea of Kermit being so bloodthirsty. Welcome to the 77th Hunger Games. Yeah. I know that you can't do it on cue, but say, it will be a symbolic Hunger Games. It will be a symbolic Hunger Games. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think coin is a good pick for Kermit. Mm. Well, it's also the subversion of Kermit's nice guy. Well, I guess at that point... It's Robin Williams in Insomnia is what it is. I like. guess at that point, Scooter would be for Pluto. I think Gonzo for No, Plutarch. Sandy Eagle. Because you'd have no trouble believing that he was a bad guy supporting the system. Mm, that's fair. But then yeah. he's also the guy who kind of, like, is pulling the strings. He comes in clutch at the end. Gonzo as Finnick. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like, like the hunky pig... Link Hogthrob. Okay. Yeah. For the mutants in the sewer, I think Ani- that's just, just multiple a bunch animals. of animals. Yeah, yeah multiple that's, that's animals. what I was thinking. Just a bunch of animals. Animal the mutts are just animals. <laughs> um, God, running out of people that are of note. Janice as Joanna. Mm. Well, I think that's about everyone. Yeah, I don't think that we... I mean, you can chuck in Crazy Harry somewhere in the, in yeah. the mix. Yeah, yeah, he's he's one of the careers. He's just like he likes throwing yeah. bombs at people. 
No, 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 no. Okay. Bobo the Bear as Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes! <laughs> yes! He's just like solidly just standing there. He, he's, yeah. he's very solidly built. He's just telling everyone exactly what needs to happen. He's like, but President Coin, we need to do this. I love that, actually. That's genius. And all he does is just stand. Yeah. And you can imagine the bit at the end. Uh, oh, he's just standing there. Smiles. Or like Elmo, Elmo as uh, as Prim. Sure. Rue? That's the little frog. Maybe. Or do you keep Rue as, um, as human? Mm. I don't know. I feel like that's a delicate spot in the you have narrative. To have, okay, if you have Rue as a human, you have to have all of the other contestants other than Katniss as Muppets. You have to have them be the only two humans among mm. them. I like the idea of Elmo as Prim and then, like, when the false flag happens, there's just, like, this shower of fluff that falls down on Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> as she's lying burning <laughs> on the ground. Yeah, yeah, instead of her being on fire, it's just all of Kermit's fluff. fluff. <laughs> all right, so why don't we uh, now move on to, say, who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite... Well, actually, no, I forgot. How could I almost forget? We do actually have a couple of entries in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. Um, not as many as you would think. I, I don't know what it is, but some of these these more recent movies we've been doing over the last couple of years have been much more curated, the IMDb Parents Guide. Mm. Maybe IMDb, IMDb caught on. Um, but uh, there is one entry for the first film in Profanity. Name-calling, like Loverboy. <laughs> oh, I, I do have to say... Oh. It, what, to be fair, it was meant derisively. Yeah, Isabel <laughs> Furman... Has the crazy eyes. Like, and she does it so well. Mm. Uh, and in the second film, uh, Sex and Nudity, a young woman takes off her clothes in an elevator. Her back and shoulders are nude, but after she walks out of the elevator, just a bit of her right breast is seen. If you're not looking for it, you might miss it. <laughs> now I won't be able to see anything else. <laughs> okay, that... Ew... I like that. Well, I don't like. I find find alarming. <laughs> but the thing that makes it as noteworthy it. as noteworthy as is is the yeah. might miss it exactly. It's like it's not. It's not a content warning. It's a don't look away <laughs> warning. It's, a, like, it's, it's not too... a content warning. It's a call to arms. Yeah. It's not it, a it warning. Is, it's it an is, alert. It is drawing attention to yeah. it. It's like this person saw it and was like. You know who needs to know? The internet. Everyone. <laughs> everyone needs to know. Because right. everyone else may have missed it, but my eyes, like a hawk. Uh, now, why don't we move on to, say, who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and, of course, who we would recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor, John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? Me! <laughs> I will start us off, and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Jennifer Lawrence, or this franchise, rather. I, I think that she is the spine that the whole endeavour is built around. She is excellent. Uh, she is a true movie star, and she inhabits this role with a real ferocity and a real power. She makes the movie um, not just work on an intellectual level, but work on an emotional level as well. And uh, I think that she was just a, a great get for that role. So I'm going to give it to her. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I thought a lot about this. And in fact, there are probably other moments in the series or stretches of the uh, the narrative that I prefer to what I'm about to say. But in terms of it being a scene or sequence, not a moment and not a 20-minute stretch, um, I'm 
going to go with the uh, execution of Snow, which turns into also the execution of Coin. Uh, that's actually a moment that every now and again I rewatch on YouTube just to see the performance of Donald Sutherland as he laughs insanely the as he gets joy. Yeah, as he gets torn apart by the crowd. I think I think that that's such an effective scene because it's such a brutal denouement on the themes of the entire series. We've talked so much about how bleak these stories are, about how cynical they are, about power, about governments, about leaders. And the fact that a young adult narrative ends with the protagonist executing the revolutionary leader they've just they've just helped lead into power uh, before being hustled away while the previous dictator that they overthrow is torn apart by an angry crowd. <laughs> and the fact that Donald Sutherland cackles like someone yeah. who's just won a board game. With blood flowing from his mouth. <laughs> like, it is... It is such a bravura moment, and it's, it is it's cinema. cinema. It well, it's it's what shows you in a very tight and effective period of time how much more there is going on to this movie than just American battle royale ripoff. It, it shows yeah. that Snow couldn't possibly lose. Yeah. It shows how much there is going under the hood, thematically, ideologically, politically. Um, and it, it plays into a finale, a final stretch of Mockingjay Part 2 that I think is is really brilliant. And I'm, you know, I'm very impressed with the maturity and the darkness of those stories. Uh, in terms of who I would recast with this podcast patron saint character, actor John Lisko, there can be only one. Um, he's got to be President Snow. He <laughs> would be exceptional as President Snow. I think he, Snow, he would he would really fit as this sort of like, in the same way as Donald Sutherland is, he is this sort of, like, cuddly dictator. You know what I mean? Mm. He's there in the soft-looking dressing gowns, and he's got the grandpa face, and he's speaking he's, very... He's watching the sh- He's watching his stories with his yeah. granddaughter. And he's speaking very pleasantly and politely and softly, but there's a wildness behind the eyes, a menace to the way he approaches everything, and I think that he could do... John Lithgow could do that exceptionally uh i don't know i think i see donald sutherland and i'm like okay that guy is definitely crook like he you've put him in this position of power oh he's he's a psycho but i think john lithgow can play the sort of walt disney everyone's uncle kind of thing Mm. um yeah i'm gonna go with him in the snow roll i think it would be good it would put him really at the center of uh these movies more than most other options uh, and it will put him in, you know, some of the meatiest parts of the story. So I'm going to go with him. Uh, for me, I would have to give my MVP to Donald Sutherland. Uh, he's just having a blast. He petitioned for the role, and he absolutely earns it. Um, and it's not often that you'd get an act of his caliber basically begging to be part of a franchise like this one, but he saw in it what was there. The, the, the brilliance inherent to the project, the, the politics inherent to the project, and Donald Sutherland is eating it up every chance he gets. But the eerie thing about his version of Snow is that he's just a man. He's not an all-encompassing beast. He's not someone who has a perfect om- omniscience on everything. But 
he's extremely, extremely well-practiced at the Little Cruelties. The, the fact he has them bomb District 13 with a bomb that prioritizes leaving the flowers there. He prioritizes leaving the flowers there above having a bigger charge in the in the in the bomb to cause that, more damage. He does it specifically to get to one person who has the context. No one else understands what yeah, the flowers mean. Just the the deep and utter pettiness of Snow <laughs> and the fact that Sutherland plays the role as if all of this is perfectly reasonable. Like everything he's doing is like I told you. We don't lie to one another. I've never once lied to you since I made that promise. Imagine playing Monopoly with this son of a bitch. <laughs> like the dude has the greatest poker face on the planet. Um I think Donald Sutherland is f- outstanding here. Uh, I'll be watching his scenes again. My favorite scene or sequence or while I adore the double a dictator execution scene, and the other joy on Snow's face as he gets ripped apart. I have to say, my favorite scene or sequence is the is the public announcement of the court quarter quell that it's a champions bracket, and the look on Katniss's face just falls. Like she despises the fact that there's a quarter quell, that there's another Hunger Games at all, but the fact that she is absolutely the only female victim. She bellows in terror and the the reaction of her family Hamish's reaction to the to the possibility to the 50/50 chance that he's going back into the Hunger Games he's destroyed cuz it's either he loses Peter or he dies both of which he's not overly fond of um uh, I just love that moment and the grin the absolute smile on Snow's face as he announces the quarter quell. Because at that p- moment, he has sent a message. He sent a direct message to every victor that they're not invincible, and at any moment, they can be put back into the Hunger Games. It It's a brilliant, gutful moment for the characters, and I, I just thought it was great. It struck me the moment we watched it, even though I knew exactly what was coming up. Um, Who had we cast with John Lithgow? See, there are a couple of roles, only, there are only about two roles I can pick for this, and that is Snow and Plutarch. Um, and I'm gonna have to go for Snow here. I think while Sutherland is perfect for Snow, Philip Seymour Hoffman just owns the character of Plutarch. I couldn't picture anyone else, like anybody else as Plutarch. Nobody has that sort of like ice cold command uh as an actor that that Hoffman did Hoffman was a sort of singular performer that we just don't have anymore something about the way that he when he's talking about barraging the media with images of the wedding and Mm. floggings and executions how he doesn't break his intonation as he switches gears the way he's just like you know, talking about the wedding, seeing lots of flowers executions, talking about all this other fun stuff, floggings. Like, <laughs> the, way that, <laughs> the way that he just doesn't break stream. Like, it's so it's so great. Like, the only actor I can see similar to Philip Seymour Hoffman is... Oh, we were talking about him just before. Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. I can see He's a bit the- of William Hurt in what yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman does. But, like... 
Hoffman has such a singular effect as a performer um, that I think John Lithgow would play Snow brilliantly. Uh, going be between jovial and ice cold is something that he's incredibly well versed in. I say this a lot, but Trinity Killer. <laughs> um, but there was also be something so chilling about watching Lithgow's eyes light up the moment he find the moment he's talking to Katniss and reveals to her that it was a false flag that killed her sister. Like I think he could play that exceptionally well, and plus. That moment when he gets torn apart by the angry mob. Just, he would own that moment, you know? But, God, losing Sutherland would be a, a tragedy as well in the role, I think. Sutherland does so well. But so, it's going to have to be uh, Mrs. John Lithgow as President Coriolanus Snow. So, I know that this is going to seem sort of out of the blue and out of nowhere. I'm giving it my MVP to Josh Hutcherson. I was thoroughly impressed with his performance in this movie, particularly the parts where he's been tortured, because you see years off of this dude's life, mm. and the way he screams and howls in pain. When he goes the, ape shit. When he goes ape shit, you feel it. He's another one of those actors where like, you can very reliably put him in a scene where his character is heartbroken. Like I, I've known this since Bridge to Terabithia, that he plays the moment when his heart breaks in half. He plays devastated so perfectly, and he needs a career resurgence. I I hope to God that he doesn't get caught in the Fazbear spiral. I hope that he's able to actually do some more, you know, dramatic stuff. Like in my eyes, he should be at the position that of Alden Ehrenreich or Dane DeHaan, where he's able to do. Interesting oh, no, little I'd, bit parts and stuff. Wishing the careers of Alden Ehrenreich and Dane DeHaan onto Josh Hutchison is really doing much no. to convince me that you have his best interest in mind. <laughs> I could have, like, I remember seeing Josh like, Hutchison in Disaster like Artist. Hutchinson, Hutchinson getting a role in, say, Oppenheimer. Yeah, as like, like a, one, one as of a those side, side characters. Like, yeah. the fact that he played a little shithead in Disaster Artist. Like, Denny. He oh played Denny in Disaster Artist. It was perfect in like, that. It's, it's that kind of quality role, I think, that he should be getting. And he showed his worth in this movie. Mm. Um, so I give it to Josh Hutcherson. I was thoroughly impressed yeah. by him this watch through because I was really focusing on him. Nice. And it's because he had such a low opinion of him before it. Nice try, John. Like, <laughs> Just get it out of your system, Lawson. Uh, continue. Go okay. On. So for my favorite scene or sequence, it's the hanging tree. That song has stuck in my head ever since I first heard it because there is something so chilling about it. The way that Plutarch happily says, you know, the line used to be, wear a necklace of rope. I changed it to necklace of hope. <laughs> the fact that it's just this blatant, least amount of effort bullshit try to way of trying to make on his face too the way that they've (laughs) tried to turn this frankly tragic song this murder ballad and turn it into an anthem an anthem the fact that they changed one line and they think that that's done it the fact that the entire rest of the song isn't tragic is all hell 
the Appalachian sound of the song. Like, and the montage there is so brilliant. I love that entire sequence. And who I would get John Lithgow to play, and I'm actually gonna uh, push against the grain on this one, because I know that you guys are picking him as Snow. Flickerman. Ooh. I think you use him in these very short, sharp moments of injecting a cartoonish John Lithgow, and you see the sort of devolution of him until that last sort of piece to camera where he's being a journalist, not a talk show host, where he's got that look of utter death on his face. Mm. I think Lithgow could play that character's arc to a T. And I, I really don't want to get rid of that image of Donald Sutherland cackling with laughter, cackling with joy that he's won. Mm. And I don't, I can't see Lithgow doing that moment justice. Because I think Sutherland was the way to go there. Because he's got a very angular look to his face, the way that his beard is there, the way his hair is there. There's viciousness in the eyes. He's a, he's a much sharper mm. looking person. And I think that all of the frilly outfits and stuff that Snow wears betray the fact that he is a dagger of a person. That his tool is poison. He's a snake. So now we are going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we are a pro Hunger Games franchise podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? Um, I'm voting yes. I'm saying that we should be a pro the Hunger Games franchise podcast. I think that it's a brilliantly constructed series. I think that it has a lot going under the hood. It's dark. It's bleak. It's smart. Um, and it's brilliantly acted and brilliantly made. So um, I'm going, yes, I think in an odd way for a movie that is this amount of cultural footprint, it's still somehow underrated. Yeah, for me, I, I completely agree with Lawson on every point there. It's not every day you get one of these young adult fiction stories that is still just so bleak. And that's the thing that sits with me. I don't feel good. <laughs> these movies don't make me feel good. The ending didn't make me feel good. The, the tacked-on happy ending made me actually feel worse. Um, and it's a, it's a hell of an exercise to do this. It's kind of a magic trick, um, making it work. It saved the studio, for Christ's sake. It was a last-ditch attempt to sort of survive, funnily enough. Uh, and it's incredible. I, I think all the performance is fantastic. While I do think it is a little long... Um, I, I think it's a very well thought out story. Susan Collins did a fantastic job creating that world. And I can't wait to see Ballad of Songbirds, Songbirds and Snakes. Um, cause from what I've been told, it's just as bleak and just as well made. Um, I think the act is great. It's just very, very well done. And plus, I love me some death games. I liked I was in Borderlands, Hunger Games. I like uh, Squid Game. There's like so watching games of PUBG and Fortnite. Battle mm. Royales, you know? There's just something compelling about gamifying death and how that could be used as a vehicle for storytelling. The idea of then there was one. Kind of, yeah. Like a contest. Like, yeah. Making it explicitly a contest. Yeah. I say absolutely, 100%, this is on our uh, 
a pro list. This is iconic. It actually defies its own public persona by being a brilliant and scathing satire on media and on propaganda and the way people convince themselves what they're doing is right. This is of exceptionally high quality. Suzanne Collins was able to convince a bunch of teenagers to eat their broccoli and slip it into their mac and cheese. And then Lionsgate and all of the creatives they hired did exactly the same thing to millions of more people. Mm. They snuck in a brilliant takedown of the system and some, funnily enough, some very left-wing politics into a blockbuster by Mm. tricking them with a love story that's not really a love triangle. Mm. Like, it's been able to defy convention in that sense that it's... Watching it again gives me such a respect for everyone involved. So, there you have it. We are a pro The Hunger Games podcast. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You find Lawson at Exodo the Candy, Convoy, John Mind 7 on the Bright Side. You can also reach us at our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about the Hunger Games? What do you think about uh, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? And if you would be from any of the districts, which one would you be? You can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on Podcast App of Choice. Just keep in mind that also in Podcast Apps, when you're commenting, it's on specific episodes and on others, it is on the whole. I know that Podbean, for example, does specific episodes and Apple Podcast is for the show on the whole. So if you are commenting on the whole, do refer to in name and number which episode you're talking about. It just helps us uh, understand what you're talking about. Uh, But please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. I've spoken in the past about the death games that still occur uh, within the future. The fact that it is gladiatorial combat between mascots. It is just machines at this point. Well, machines and cyborgs. Uh, you do get people with like robotic limbs, robots with meat limbs. It's it's like a whole thing. You can be a reverse cyborg, in fact. that's That was actually going to be my question. Can a robot elect to have human parts added to them? Well, I'm, naturally. I'm, I'm very happy that you... Uh, brought that up. Well, like, with, like, 3D printing the way it is now, mm. you know. Yeah. It's it's very, very detailed. It's not, like, proper human flesh, because that require, like, stem cell research, and we still haven't cracked that quite yet. Uh, but it looks incredibly human at this point, and that helps for a lot of the mascot mm. stuff, because when you have Ron McDonald running out there, you want to see him bleed properly. <laughs> um, Jesus. People are no less bloodthirsty nowadays. Yeah, I guess. So, Lawson, what have you got cooking for next week? Um, well, this is going to be one of the odd ones. One of the the small, underseen, out-of-the-way things that I get you to watch, really, just so I have someone somewhere that I can talk to about them. Um, it's very funny. Someone else to acknowledge yeah. it exists. Yes, make sure it wasn't something that I dreamt. Um, it's a very fun film, a very clever film, but messy in a lot of ways. Very funny, too, though. It is um, the 2011 horror parody, Detention. There's only one problem. John, I'm so sorry, but it stars Josh Hutchinson. <laughs> I knew you were saving. I knew you were saving something for the end there. I, 
I was Bravo. wondering what it was going to be. That's fine. <laughs> it's funny because the last time you used the dream analogy was with HR Puff and stuff. Yeah. So I, I have to admit, they called Hitchcock the master of suspense. <laughs> We have a new king in town. We, we've got our very own Plutarch. You know, I don't want to, to beat the dead horse, so I will just say, you know, it's probably too much to continue the gag into yet another episode. It is true that John bears uh, no ill will towards Josh Hutchison. He no, wishes him no particular harm. So, um... I'll, I'll even let... you say... That's all you're going to get. That is all him... you're going to get, John. Even you saying bears him no particular harm feels way too neutral for me. <laughs> I, I wish It's him... a political response. I, yeah, that was very, like, barely, cr- barely crossing the floor. That was very uh, much tossing it from the, the side. The gag has had a good run, but let's be honest, we get to the Hunger Games and it was the genesis of the whole joke in the yeah, beginning. It, it sort of, it wears itself out. It eats itself out. So, you it know. It was killing John. <laughs> well, we'll call it a day and um, and revoke our status as the internet's premier anti-Josh Hutchison podcast. I'm sure there has to be someone else out there. Yeah, there's probably some other person. Very niche. So, Join us next week for when we discuss the little-known detention. Till then, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been your volunteer, Jean Lewis. (laughs) Yeah, and can we actually, like, it's either we get you to re-record that, or we just just clip someone from the movie. No, just leave it in. (laughs) 